The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Minimum 200, 100 above. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Today's show is recorded on the 6th of October, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's show, Rob and I sit down with a pilot of both air and sea. Joining me to kick off Flight 58 of Squawk Ident podcast is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a pickleball master, a commercial drone operator, and currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show as an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his fortress of isolation, where he has been witnessing construction crews ripping out his flooring and creating havoc throughout his entire space of tranquility. Serenity now, serenity now. From somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help me in welcoming back to the show, Rob D. Rob, how you doing? What's going on, Tony? It's good to be back, man. And congratulations on the one-year anniversary. Yes. Uh, man, that, that was a great show. I listened to it yesterday, and um, it's a milestone for you and the podcast, and um, it, I'm very happy to be a guest on your show or, or co-host or whatever you want to call me. The co-host extraordinaire, my friend. Uh, you know, it, this whole month, I I consider the pot Um It's been a, a pretty good journey so far. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. really developed. And for any of those listeners out there that started out listening to the first couple of shows, I, I apologize. <laughs> you know, we were still <laughs> you know, learning on, on finding our way. Yeah. Sure. The, the, the way, the tone that we wanted to set for the podcast. And I think we've found a pretty good uh, tone here. Also joining us today is a spectacular aviator. He's an avid fisherman, a Grady White boat skipper, a culinary Angelou, a wicked YouTuber, 
voted the North Shore Boston Zamboni Driver of the Year three times in a row, mm. a former EMB 145 driver for Sam Fiber Regional, a Boston native, and currently a 737 driver for a major U.S. carrier we here on the show like to call Transglobal. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Tony Z. Hey, Tony, how you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. So here on Squawk Ident, you know, we focus on the journey of today's aviator, the challenges that they came across getting to where they are in aviation and beyond. And we like to focus on that and a couple good stories along the way. So I want to thank you for being here today and sharing your journey with us. So let's start out. How did you get your start in aviation? What was that trigger? You know, as a young kid, I always liked airplanes. I was always fascinated by it. And I can remember like you know, taking family trips to Florida and, you know, I mean, as a kid, you think like, oh, cool, Florida, which is great. Don't get me wrong. You're excited about going on the trip, but I'm excited. Like, oh, cool. Get to go on an airplane. This is going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, I mean, just sort of sparked my interest from there to the point where as a young kid, I just, you know, anything I had to do with an airplane or an airline always had my attention. So I knew from a young age, this is what I wanted to pursue a career in. And out of high school, I started down that path. And some number of years later, here I am flying for Transglobal and sitting in as a guest, uh, guest spot on Squawk Guy Den. Who would have thought? There you go, man. Well, we're, we're really excited to have you. Now, you and Rob actually have a little bit of history together. Yeah, we do. What can you tell me about that? So I used to fly with Rob at Sandpiper uh, way back in the day. Um, which uh, was a Thursday, by the way, if I remember right. And uh, yeah, no, we, uh, we flew, uh, probably, I'd say at least half a dozen times at, uh, at Sandpipe. We were both based out of New York. So yeah, we had a couple of fun trips together over there. Yeah. I remember when I met you, uh, Z, it, you, you um, were just awesome. You know, I, I, as soon as like first impression, I was like, this guy's sharp. He's he he's gonna be you know an awesome guy to fly with and and it was I was right you know my intuition was right I mean we had such a you know first good trip and I look forward to all the other times we flew and every time we did we always had a good trip and good times and shared some stories. Likewise, uh, very similar impression and uh, feeling as well. Yeah, and so you you guys flew together. Did you sit in the cockpit and do what we normally do and go, so what'd you do before this? And, uh, you know, what have you been flying? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We went, we went through the standard progression, I think as everybody does. Yeah. That's how this podcast got started. Uh, a buddy of mine who is not an aviator sat down with me, a, a friend from the, uh, the breaker breaker podcast. And, uh, and now he's got a couple other podcasts going on and a YouTube channel. And so he's all over the place on the socials. But uh, he sat down with me one day and said, hey, man, uh, I got to get home and work on my podcast. And I was like, what? You know, like Joe Rogan podcast? He's like, that kind of thing? And he's like, yeah, man, you should totally start one. And here we are a year later uh, and uh, still going strong, you know. Um, but let's get back to it. See, you know, you you started out. At a relatively young age and right out of high school, you were telling us that uh, you decided, hey, man, this is this is something I've always wanted to do. I'm going to pursue this. And you ended up uh, achieving a bachelor's degree in aviation sciences from Bridgewater State in 2007. What was that study like? I mean, was it a, a challenge for you or was it just like any other college courses and aviation training simultaneously? What was that like? You know, I would, I would say it was, 
I would say it was similar to any other college course, but uh, the difference was I was actually interested in it. You know, it was one of those things where, I mean, let's be honest about it, you know, a lot of your college courses, you just kind of, at least me, I just kind of just like, all right, you know, hey, you know, this is kind of like a check the box. You got to get this thing to get your 120 credit hours and get your bachelor's. But if it had to do with the core of what I was there studying, I was always a lot more interested in it. I think because of that interest level, you know, that corresponded to, you know, you're more inspired to study and pay attention to and learn it more in depthly. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, I mean, um, to me, it wasn't one of those things when I say it was similar to another course. And I don't know, maybe I should walk that back a little bit. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was challenging. Yes, it was challenging. But um, the challenge wasn't a burden is, I guess, what I was trying to um, trying to correlate. That was the thought that I was trying to get at. And it wasn't a burden because I was interested in studying it. So I think when you're interested in studying something, I think that you're going to do what it takes. You're going to put forth a lot more effort and intensity for it. So I enjoyed it. It was challenging, but um, it's also a lot of fun to learn because you want to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Rob, did you kind of have the similar aspiration to stay in the books? Do you remember back well, then? Yeah, f- absolutely. For me, you know, I, I, uh, I took a different course um, out of high school. I didn't go to college. I went to the trades and eventually enlisted in the military. But very similar. I mean, exactly what uh, Z said. You know, for me, if I wasn't interested in it, you know, I was not going to do very well at, at the studies or anything like that. So as soon as I found something that, you know, held my attention and curiosity, I was willing to... Uh, you know, put forth the effort and, and really learn about it. And for me, it started off with mechanic stuff and then it transitioned into uh, aviation and flying and piloting airplanes. So, um, yeah, I really dove into that and uh, I still do today because I love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, uh, every, every time I get a chance to learn something about the plane or, or, you know, whatever I'm doing, like for me presently, it's my boat trying to fix it, <laughs> keep it, keep it top, you know, uh, seaworthy. Um, I'm learning as much as I can about it and um, doing the best I can to keep it going. Yeah. I think that's my next uh, venture is to figure out a way to pick up a boat. I need to join the club, man. <laughs> well, you got to get that trailer going, that. man. Yeah. BOT, bust out another thousand, right, Rob? That's it, brother. <laughs> Let me tell you something. From experience, I can tell you personally, there are two great days of boat ownership the day you buy it and the day you sell it. Ah, Everything yeah. in between can be some, somewhere between somewhere between <laughs> ecstasy and a regret. Let's just say that. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just stick to renting when I need it, right? That's, that's the, it. That's cheaper. The, uh, I'll, give you, I'll tell you one even better. Just know someone with the boat. Make nice with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. there you bring go. Bring a bottle yeah. of scotch with you. You know, whatever. Oh, that's yep. easy and cheaper. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. Cheaper. yeah, far more cost effective. So, so you went through your aviation sciences program, and you were working on your ratings simultaneously. And at mm-hmm. what point did you decide to enlist in the National Guard? So I was already in. I went in basically right out of high school and was doing it concurrently with being in college. I spent a few years in the Army Guard and a few years in, in the Air Guard just before I got out. Mm-hmm. Any, any uh, particular examples you can share with us with what being in the Guard entails? Um, you know, I mean, National Guard, you know, you're one week in a month, two weeks in the summer, although there was a lot going on at that time. And I did get activated for a year. So that sort of slowed down my progression. I always jokingly say, yeah, I was on like the six or seven year plan with college. But um, when I was activated, I was activated stateside. So I never went overseas. And I just, you know, believe in full transparency about that. So I was activated for a year when I was with the Army Guard. And um, 
you know, I can, um, you know, I can just basically tell you that, you know, depending on, you know, the, the world the geopolitical climate, and what's going on, uh, it may very well be more than one week into month, uh, two weeks in the summer. Uh, I tried to pursue a pilot slot, but the timing of it didn't work out. And, um, you know, in looking into a pilot slot and also being in the air guard and being attached to a unit that had a flying mission, um, as a pilot, if you go into the into the air guard, it's a little bit more involved than just your one week into month, sort of two weeks in the summer, because you have your drill weekends as a pilot. But then at the same time, too, you have to maintain currency. You know, you may have to get so many GPS approaches or cross countries or simulator qualifications, whatever the case might happen to be. So you're going to be in there more than just your one weekend a month. And that's something that you know I think one would have to be aware of. And you shouldn't look at that as something that's a burden or something that's going to scare you away from it. But um, if you're looking to do it more on the on the side of being an aviator, uh, just something to consider. Yeah. So I, I might have missed this, but uh, so you were uh, Army National Guard and Air National Guard um, at one point or another. What was your MOS in the Army? I guess that's uh, the, uh, the the you know the inside term of what was your job right. in the Army. Uh, so that was, I was 11 B, which is infantry. And then when I transitioned or crossed into the blue, as I like to say, uh, I went into airfield management. Oh, nice. Airfield management. That's cool. Um, and I, I asked that too, because, uh, for some of our military folks, especially the enlisted guys, I know there's a handful that listen to our podcast. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, interested in the aviation side, how to become a pilot. And a lot, a lot of guys realize that, that you can transition, you know, even from the enlisted ranks, um, not only into the, um, the flying ranks, you know, of, of the military, but also civilian, uh, kind of like we did. Um, and you know, this, this is a good podcast for them to kind of, you know, showcase, Hey, it can be done. You know, so I've done it. You've done it. Uh, many of us have, um, you just have to, did, did you have a GI bill? Um, did that, did you use that GI bill for anything? Some of it. Yep. I did. Uh, I wasn't able to use, really use it for flight training, but just for, you know, for college expenses. Absolutely. And sort of speaking to that, to that last point, I think that what a lot of people might not understand about trying to get a flying billet in the air national guard or in the air force reserve, it's not as simple as it is in the enlisted side where you just go down to your local recruiting office and say, Hey, I want to be in the air guard or the air force reserve. So first thing first is you have to be an officer. And you have to be you have to be basically eligible to become an officer, which requires that you have a four year degree. So that's one part of it. And there, you know, with the Air Guard and with the Air Force Reserve, you actually have to be hired by that unit to be a pilot. So what they do exactly. is they put out they usually have one, sometimes two boards per year where they'll where they'll allow you to submit a resume. The board reviews it. They decide whether they want to bring you in for an interview and then say that they bring in 10 people. They're going to usually pick, you know. In the space and however many slots. They may only have one slot, they may have two. They'll say, okay, you know, we're gonna pick two primary slots and we're gonna pick two alternates uh, or some variation thereof. So the big thing is that you know you have to get out there, you have to apply to a lot of different units because it's highly competitive. I mean, it's competitive enough just to get selected. I mean, I remember when I was applying at certain units and just with me, the timing of it didn't work out. I aged out before, and that's the other thing too. The last I knew, I think it was you had to be in UPT by your 30th birthday. So, you know, that was probably going back at least seven or eight years ago now. So, you know, check and check to make sure that that's still the right number. But uh, I aged out before I was able to get selected. But there were some units that I was applying to that they were getting like 100, 120 applications and narrowing it down to 10 people they want to interview. That's tough enough. And then out of the 10 they're going to interview, they're taking one, maybe two. So it gets pretty competitive. It, it does. But don't let it discourage you. 
you know, but that, uh, yeah. that's the, just the competitive nature of, of how it works. And if you're really serious about it and you're just, you know, willing to push hard and do what it takes, it's definitely accomplishable, but you have to know what you're up against to, to look into something like that. Yeah. And it's yeah, interesting. You're, you're, Go ahead. No, I was going to say uh, your, your story mirrored my, my experience. I mean, that's exactly what I was up against with my guard unit, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of applicants and, you know, people that were way more qualified than I was, and, you know, we're fighting for two spots, <laughs> you know? Right. So I was like, if I get it, cool. I just hit the lottery. If not, you know, I kind of expected it, but you know, you have, you have to apply to, uh, to try. So, yeah. you know, if you don't apply, one of, the you're things, not gonna win. one of the things I think that might discourage people is that, you know, they may look into this and find out, you know, whoa, some of these applicants, I'm, you know, I'm competing against are like Ivy League graduates with a 4.0 GPA and an All-American in football. And, you know, they've got a thousand hours of flight time already. I can't compete against that. Believe it or not, that's not always who a lot of these units take. Um, you know, they're looking for not the best person. They're looking for the right person for that squadron. And that doesn't mean exactly. that the person with the 4.0 grade average that's an All-American is not the right person. But a lot of times what these units are really looking for is just looking for, hey, are you a good fit for the unit? And there might be, you know, out of the 10 people that they select, all 10 of them might be really great guys or girls that, that they might think, hey, they're all a great fit for the squadron. Now it's a matter of, okay, you know, who are you invest money on to go to UPT? Because financially, that unit has a big amount of money that they have to invest into you because they have to allocate that money for you to go to UPT. So they want to make sure, number one, that you can get through the training. But the biggest thing is they want to make sure if they're deployed with you, that they can be with you for, you know, a period of 90 days or six months, you know, without wanting to shoot you as opposed to the enemy. So, you know, don't let it discourage you that, you know, you might be stacked up against on paper, some really stiff competition out there, but just just if you're serious about it and you you know just have the confidence to pursue it you, you know maybe it doesn't work out for you initially but just keep pressing at it and i really think that you know personally i think that the that the air guard and the air force reserve is like the be, is one of the best kept secrets out there it's like one of the last great yeah. deals that's still around and yeah, well if said. you can get into that and get your hours and get your training that way so that you're not out of pocket for it. And maybe you can even avoid, you know, possibly having to go through the progression of a regional airline. Like, look what's happening right now. Here's a great benefit. So a lot of people that are facing furlough, and this happened with a lot of pilots post 9-11. And, you know, that when I was in the air, I was like right around 04 to like 07-ish. You know, 9-11 had been some number of years earlier than that. It was in 2001. There were still a lot of pilots that were furloughed from the different legacy carriers that were flying full time in the guard. So yeah. that's a that's a great thing to kind of look at too. Absolutely. That's why I say you know the Air Force, the Air Force Reserve, Air, Air National Guard. It's a great deal. It's the last good deal that's still left out there. It's the best kept secret in the world, as far as I'm concerned. So if you can get your hours and do it that way, pursue it, and don't Definitely. let the you know the competitive you know nature of applying for one of those spots scare you from applying. And I think that's that psychs a lot of people out that they think I can't compete with this competition, and they don't even try. Yeah, that's good advice. And you very said good. a couple of things that were very interesting. The first thing that I just wanted to focus on a little bit was don't let it discourage you. And it reminds me, you know, years ago in my previous life and the previous job profession that I had, we had an individual that was trying to become a supervisor and move up in the company. It's obviously a big pay jump and, you know, it was more of a, a management role and it was very competitive. We had seven people, vying for that spot. And, you know, after extensive interviews with all the managers of the building and, you know, everybody had like a, a review and, and a selection board basically uh, at this retail job at the big box uh, retailer. And 
we ended up going with two people, uh, and this individual uh, who was uh, one of my what I used to call gold stars. I, I always had as a manager, I always had four or five employees that were my gold stars that I knew that you know if I needed to get something done, I knew that it, they're the ones that I'm going to try to give the work to because their aspirations were to move up in the company and I knew it would get done. He was one of my gold stars and he came to me afterwards and was extremely upset. He goes, you know, this is bull crap. And he was mad. He was mad because he said, I'm more qualified. I've got more experience. And, and he also was a, an, an active reservist. Um, and he goes, you know, I have more experience. I deal with generals and stuff. And this is, I can't believe the, the way I've been passed up by these people who are not even, you know, as experienced or as old as I am. And I said, well, if all it took was for you to hear one thank you, but no thank you to discourage you to the point where you no longer have faith in your job, your position, or this company, or the people that run it, then it tells me that the management and their decision was a good decision because this is all it took for you to get discouraged. Well, then this is not really the job for you then. Um, and, And it was a little you know, come the Jesus moment for him, pardon the expression. Yeah. Uh, and he did turn it around and he did become uh, a member of management and, and moved on with the company. And, you know, I wished him the very best to do that. And, and we did everything we could, but that's what he had to hear. And the fact that here we are more than 20 years later, and you're saying the exact same thing that you can't let little things discourage you, whether that's with military service, whether that's in the, in the commercial realm of trying to get a job at an airline or trying to move up or whatnot. And I know this is a, at least at an airline level in aviation, it is a seniority based promotional place. But just staying in your rank and file and, be, and being a pilot and moving up and becoming a captain and earning your four stripes, that's not the only position you can get out there. There is plenty of management job positions and, and plenty of positions in leadership where it doesn't matter what your, what your serial number is or your seniority. It, all that matters is that do you have the right attitude, which lends to the second part of what you, you mentioned that I really have been saying this from the beginning of the podcast. It's all about the attitude. Who gets hired? It's not the person that has the most experience, the most type ratings, the most flight time. It's the person with the right attitude. So like you said, am I going to want to shoot you more than I shoot the enemy? (laughs) Or am I going to be okay flying a four day trip with you? Or are you just going to make me and the entire crew miserable? So having the right attitude, having the right perspective in this aviation career is actually the key to everything, to getting hired, to getting those promotions, to networking yourself, to having the opportunity to move on and move forward in aviation. So thank you for, for kind of reminding us all about that. And, and it just goes to show of the excellent attitude that you've had in, in the beginning of your career that got you into the position where you are. Now, you were telling us that as you were coming up through your flight instruction, you made it to CFI flight instructor position. Did you have a lot of students? When you were, uh, oh, I actually, I actually, I mean, I got the CFI, but I really used it very little. I think I used it like twenty hours or something like that, maybe not even. So you got wow. hired on real quick. It was a pre FAR one seventeen requirements of the fifteen hundred hours. You were able to land a job at a regional airline. How did that process work? Right. 
so what was going on? I mean, 2007, the regional airlines needed pilots and it was before, you know, it was before the 1500 hour rule came into effect as well before that. So there were bridge programs out there where basically they would take you from, from pretty much having your multi and your commercial to what you go through. And I, and I went through it down in Vero beach at flight safety is they basically take you through what is a full on type rating, except you don't actually get typed, but it's pretty much the same exact training. And actually at the time I was pre-hired by Sandpiper you know, with the, okay, go through this and pass and you have a job at Sandpiper. And that's basically how it works. But, you know, now the 1500 hour rule precludes those types of programs from being out there. So I did get hired on with pretty low time. Like I said, I forget the exact number. I mean, it was under 500 hours, you know, and now. So you were in a part of the the bridge program. Tell me a little bit about this bridge bridge program. program. What what is a bridge program for those listeners out there that may not have heard that term? Well, First and foremost, the bridge programs don't really exist anymore because you now have the 1,500-hour rule. And there's a couple of other stipulations in there, too. I mean, you, you know, you have to have 1,500 hours. You have to, it has to be for, you have to have a degree from an accredited aviation program. They might be able to water some of that 1,500 down to a lower amount of hours. But this was before any of those rules existed. So, you know, kind of what I'm talking about, you know, this was sort of, you know, this was sort of what existed in the day, you know, and that's, you know, that's a long time ago now. But anyway, it's as I kind of just described it. It's one of these things where you have your multi and your commercial, which qualifies you for it. And then you could go from basically that to going through one of these programs. And again, I did mine down at um, Flight Safety in Vero Beach, being pre-hired by Sandpiper on the contingency that, hey, you go through this program, you pay for it out of pocket, you have to pass this program. And when you do, we will give you a class date at Sandpiper. So that's what I went through. And the program that they put you through is basically what equates to going through a full, you know, a full on type rating, except you're not officially going to get a type rating out of it. It's the same training, but you don't get the type at the end of it. And it's pretty much the same, you know, long term training footprint that you're going to go through uh, when you get hired at Sandpiper or whatever respective regional at the time. So that's kind of how that works. Neat. Or how it did work past tense. So was that bridge program uh, associated with Bridgewater State? Program? No, it wasn't. No, I mean, oh, okay. bridge program in Bridgewater State. I mean, I, I could see where one would okay. make the correlation, but... Because um, I, I attended the uh, Delta Connection Academy for a short period of time, and I rem- think I remember Bridgewater as being one of the schools that had the bridge program for that. But, you know, like you said and alluded to, everything morphed into something different and, you know... Right. Yeah. So you, you went through flight safety, flight safety's program and, and ended up in 2007 landing a job at Sandpiper. Do you remember that interview process back then? How difficult was that? Uh, you know, I'll tell you what, you going into the interview, you know, you're very nervous about it. And I still remember the lady who interviewed me. I mean, basically, I think everybody at, at Sandpiper remembers Claudette and, and just what a nice lady, you know, I mean, you get in there and, you know, it's, it's like you're in the big game, you know, it's so you're right at kickoff, you're nervous, you don't want to make a mistake. And I remember walking into the office being like, okay, you know, what am I in for here? This is going to be, you know, it's just going to be a really intense, grueling interview. Just made some small talk. And then 10 minutes later, you know, after sort of transitioning from the small talk, I realized, oh, the interview already started and I didn't know it. And um, the lady <laughs> was just great to talk to. She's just a very pleasant person. You know, they ask you kind of the standard interview-ish type questions, which you, you know, you prepare for those. And uh, I'll say it was a very pleasant experience. You know, Claudette was a great lady to work with. And on the subject of interviews, and I know that Claudette was doing this up until recently, or I, should, I think she might still be doing it as a matter of fact, um, but she does interview prep along with um, Judy Tarver another one who does it. And I actually did Judy, Judy Tarver's interview prep some number of years later when I was trying to get on at some guard units. And then, and then again, at some different airlines uh, down the road, 
And uh, that's one of the things that, you know, going into an interview, I would highly recommend is do an interview prep. And there's, you know, there's, uh, I'm trying to think, there's, there's FAPA. There's a couple other ones, I think Emerald Coast, Cage Consulting. Um, I assume most of them are still around, but, you know, granted interviews right now with what's going on, there's not too many of them to be had, but, you know, this too will pass and it's going to spin back up again. And I definitely would recommend that anyone who's going to, who's going to interview coming up, Hire one of these people. It's a great investment. Like I said, I worked with Judy Tarver. Um, she was excellent. I highly recommend her. And oddly enough, the lady who did my interview at Sandpiper was also, you know, an, an interview sort of consultant for people um, down the road. Uh, Claudette Carroll. Yeah. yeah, they're all very good. I definitely would recommend yeah. looking them up and, and checking them out. Yeah, and, and you. So you got hired on at a regional airline with less than five hundred hours. This is. You know, now we look at this like, whoa, really? But back then, that was actually very common, <laughs> normal. you know, yeah, in, that in, was. That, and, in that time frame. And it's sort of history repeating itself, because I can remember before I was at Bridgewater State, um, I was at North Shore Community College for two years, and they had an aviation program where we did a lot of our flying up at the Beverly Airport. And the person who was running that program, you know, at the time was telling us stories to, to the likes of in the 1960s, airlines that a lot of people probably don't remember right now, but he said, you know, legit legacy carriers like Eastern Airlines would go to the local flight school up there at Beverly and just be trying to recruit people right out of the flight school. You know, hi, are you, what are you working on? Are you working on your multi-year commercial? Here's my business card. When you get this, call me. I want to interview you for Eastern Airlines. You had people back then going into the right seat of a DC-9, you know, flying for a major carrier. So in a way that was sort so of, cool. you know, history repeating itself to some degree at that time. Wow. That's the cyclical nature yeah. of the industry, right? Yeah, that is sure what is. we have been it preaching is. here. That, the, like you said, this too shall pass, and and that is it just will. the nature of the beast. So yeah, and that's and don't get discouraged. I mean, things are very you know parabolic. So you know, we were way up here, we're kind of down here, but the parabola will come back up again. So you know, people just hang in there and not get discouraged. This too will pass. You know, and yeah. it's just you know history's proven. If people said after nine eleven. The airlines are dead. They're never coming back. Nobody's ever getting on an airplane. It didn't quite work out that way. Right. And, and look at us now. I mean, people are, are exactly. mimicking yeah. those same echoes of, oh, no, the industry will never return the way it was. It's going to take a decade. And well, I don't think so. I, I just don't think so. The industry will change. I mean, the mergers. I mean, look at, you know, 2001. That was just before American merged with TWA. So realistically, you had seven legacy carriers at the time. But just as 9-11 happened, I guess technically you can make a case it was only six. And then coming out of it, almost 10 years later, we were down to three. So will the industry, will the landscape of the industry change? Absolutely. I think that we will probably following this, we'll probably see some sort of mergers or consolidations or Absolutely. something like that. The industry will stay, will stay sustained. The landscape will change. Yeah. And we've been yeah. talking about this for a while. I know Rob and I have had conversations for years now about the regional industry and will this hub and spoke feed model continue on? And we've been saying it for a long time. It can't. And it can't not because of this. We didn't predict the industry changing because of a virus, but we did predict the industry changing because of a lack of qualified applicants at the regional level, because as these mainline carriers and legacy carriers were going to hire like gangbusters, which they were up until, you know, January, February of this year. And what we saw was it just, the model couldn't sustain itself because there just wasn't going to be enough pilots to fly those regional feeds for the mainline carriers under contract. So something was going to have to change. And this kind of sparked 
a huge change. We've already seen what three U.S. regional yeah. airlines completely shut their doors. That number Compass, might be Transstates and yeah, yeah Express uh, Jet Express now Jet. Is out. Yeah. yeah. So and, and so, what's next? We don't know. But as we develop a solution to our current issue, our global issue. This may soon merge into maybe not mergers at the legacy level, but definitely at the commuter level. We're going to start to see some major changes. I think you're going to see some very big changes at, at the commuter level. And, and respectfully, I do think even at, even at the major level, I think we will see some sort of consolidation or mergers. Um, sure. But, you know, the thing is this, I think it, when you look at, at, the, at the regional airline business model, you know, they're, you know, regional airlines, you know, really are contractors of sorts. And when you have so many of these contractors that when you really look at where, where the sources of their flying come from, it comes from basically the three legacy carriers, um, I think Alaska does have some regional feed as well. So, I mean, the sources are pretty limited. So the competition amongst these regional carriers where they are contractors and they're having to basically submit very competitive bids, you know, they've pretty much got to perform their services, you know, for a lower and lower price, you know, every time, comparatively speaking. So I think that really what has to change here moving forward is the concept of the regional airline business model, because that trickles down to where you talk about qualified pilots you know, where you invest so much into becoming a pilot, you're out of pocket for your four-year degree, you're out of pocket for all of your flight training. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that you're going to assume. And then what are you going to do? You're going to walk into a job that pays you, you know, $45,000 a year. And I know some people say, well, they pay you more now. But if you, if you look at the fine print, a lot of that's bonuses. So you're taxed very heavily on the bonus, yeah. you know, yeah. and the bonus can go away. You know, there's there's a lot of little gutties in there that you have to watch out for. And even silly, I mean, even if you're at a point where you're, you know, you're making sixty, you know, thousand dollars a year, you know, I mean, you know, you're expected to live in base, or you know, it's you're encouraged to live in base where the cost of living is insanely high, and that's still not gonna cut it, you know, just on principle, let alone with you know, the amount of debt that you have to service between, you know, student loan debt for your degree and your flight training and all that. So, you know, I, I think a lot of that stems back up to the business model of regional airlines, which I think that that has to be revisited and rethought. Do you think it'll go back to where mainline carriers own or wholly own all their regional feed so that they can keep it in-house? Because I know they went away from that in the 90s and in the early 2000s because they figured, okay, if we contract out this flying, now we're not responsible for insurance costs, for, uh, you know, in medical issues, retirement funds, you know, and so all of these kind of issues of operating costs go out the window because now we're having people compete for a contract and we're going to always go with the lowest bidder. And so that's right. the model that became the regional airline industry. And for yeah, legacy airlines, that's the model that we saw after like really literally the day after the bankruptcy was declared, then that scope clause that protected uh, the, the main line from only using what 96% of all flying had to be from a wholly owned. Well, the minute you declare bankruptcy, the scope clause is out. And we saw five regional airlines come in and pick up that feed when we were at Sandpiper. And so it got very competitive. And then we ended up going from being a relatively streamlined operation to being the most expensive operation for regional feed for legacy airlines that the company had. And I remember that was a huge turning point somewhere around 2012 where they're like, all right, if you guys don't cut your costs down to like 
what the other guys are doing, then we just can't continue to operate. And that's when we saw this huge shrinking of, of at least at Sandpiper, where we went from 3,100 pilots uh, after bankruptcy and merger uh, with the main lines. Then we saw our pilot group go down to, what was it, 1,400 at its low point. So something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, over yeah. half. And so that model was the prevalent model. And that didn't just work for pilots. We saw that with ramp operations. We saw that with maintenance. It's continuing to go on with uh, maintenance uh, because, yeah, if you have yeah. a an in-house maintenance, you have to give them benefits and travel privileges and medical and 401k options and all that stuff. Yeah. But if you contract it out to the lowest bidder, and now you can have groups of people coming in from even other countries to, to go work for a company that is now contracting the maintenance out for the main line. And now the company is going to go, Hey, well, those guys are doing it cheaper unless you can lower your costs. Yeah. The new contract. I think that's, I think that's, that's the way exactly. it's going to go. I, I think contracting, um, I don't know. This is just my totally uneducated, you know, shoot off the hip kind of ant uh, or response to that. I think, the regional flying is going to, is going to, I don't think there's going to be more carriers, but I think it's going to increase and, and only because of cost. I think, uh, you know, the right now, the companies are all thinking of ways to save money. And if they can do a lot of things outside of the, you know, out, out, outside of its own house and contract lower, you know, lower cost carriers to do it, they will. Um, you know, within the scope of, you know, all the, the business and unions and all that stuff. And whenever, whenever it comes to a point where, Hey, we don't need you anymore, or, uh, you know, we need to save more money in these areas, you know, they can always do that with, uh, with the low, you know, with the contracted carriers. And, you know, I, I think with the, the three regional carriers, you know, ceasing operations, you know, leaves less carriers out there to do business with. But I think those carriers, as long as they're strong enough to survive this and can operate within, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the cost of the operation, they will be able to, if they survive this, I think they're going to take on a lot of pilots um, eventually because people are going to want to, you know, they're, they're, people are going to want to fly again and they're going to start flying out of these smaller cities again. And these, you know, airlines that are left, the regional carriers that are left are the ones that are going to be doing that flying because you're not going to fly a 737 into, uh, you know, Lawton, Oklahoma. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> a lot of those cities so, were uh, what they called essential air service stuff. Thank you. Yes, essential air right. service. And or a lot of those yeah. cities now after October 1st no longer have airlines going in there because the cuts to the feed or the schedule or the the route have taken place or are taking place yeah. right now. So a lot of these yeah. essential air service locations are no longer going to have this feed. So like you said, Rob, when the time comes and the economy starts to pick up and people start to travel and, you know, business starts to pick up because, you know, zoom calls are great for, you know, conducting everyday business meetings. But when it's time to make the deal to follow, uh, you know, from the art of the deal, uh, it's gotta be in person. It's all about strategy. It's all about yeah. that connection, person to person connection. So, basically, so Exactly. And, and, that, and that's what I was going to say, you know, I mean, you know, the top brass and, you know, and the executives are always going to have to go out there and, and press palms to close deals. So, I mean, right now things are, you know, things are kind of at a screeching halt in the business world. 
in terms of, you know, face-to-face meetings, being in the office, things like that. And I think what you are going to see, not to go off into a tangent here about, about other things, but the business world, I think that, you know, if you have a company that's leasing 30,000 square feet of office space in some downtown high rise as it stands right now, you know, okay, they figured out that we don't need 30,000 square feet. We can get that down to 10,000. We can have people in the office, you know, instead of five days a week, one day a week and have them work virtually. And this is actually a great thing that's going towards our bottom line. And I do think that that's going to be something moving forward. But sort of speaking to the point that both of you made, where the travel is going to come back. And I was watching someone on YouTube the other day, a guy that I follow who is a brilliant guy, you know, it's a great following. And, you know, he and a few of his guests on, on this particular, on this particular uh, podcast, it was a clip of a podcast. They were very, you know, they were very bearish on the outlook of business travel coming back. And, well, you know, here's the thing, just like you guys are saying, the top brass are going to have to go out and spend a weekend with a client to address different needs, to close the deal. They're going to have to go out and conduct site visits. Conventions and conferences are going to come back oh, at some yeah. particular point. I think they're going to you know, explode. People, Right. People will work from home, but the conventions and conferences are still going to take place. And people, you know, like I said, the top brass still have to go out and meet clients and do site visits. Um, So that's definitely going to going to be a thing. This isn't. And they said that after 9-11, they said, ah, business travel is dead. They're all going to do teleconferencing now. Well, that didn't play out. Didn't last is a better way of looking at it. Yeah. And And hopefully for our for our sake, it's going to come back even stronger than it was before. Because it always seems like to world. happen that way when you have these downtimes, people think of ways to, you know, this, those smart minds get together and, you know, how can we make our business bigger, better and better than it was before, you know, in this pandemic is now the time to do it. So when it comes back, boom, things explode. And, you know, now you have this crazy, crazy, you know, maybe back, hopefully we'll be back stronger than where we were before so we can all upgrade and live a happy life. Well, we still have population (laughs) growth and I guarantee you two things are going to go up exponentially probably in the next few months. People having children, babies, and people getting divorced. That's going to be too much. Can you elaborate on why you think that's, that, that's going to be a thing? I'm curious to hear why, why you think this is going to happen. It's enough said. <laughs> it's enough said. So Ask you have any supporting documents or facts. You know, so here we are, you know, and, and add to that mix, the retirement age has not changed. We were, and if you look at the numbers, that's actually helping us right now. That's helping junior pilots right now because those retirements are still happening. I can't tell you this last week I was out flying and I saw the ARF, Airport Rescue and Firefighting, staged at almost every single main hub that we were going to, not because of emergencies, but because they're sitting there ready with the, the cannon salute for retiring pilots. I know Charlotte, I know Dallas, I know LA, and I know JFK. They all are doing this time permitting on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. So you're having uh, just a crap load of pilots retiring. And that's just the people that are going at 65, not to mention those pilots. And my heart goes out to them. I've seen a few videos on the socials. Well, I didn't get my cannon salute. So, and my favorite is the captain that's sitting in a uh, on the rear trunk of the convertible white Mustang and all the people with the garden hoses and there he's in uniform and he goes, well, I didn't get my cannon salute at work. So my neighbor hooked me up and I got a cannon salute at home and it's, it's precious. Awesome. And if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But um, so that's not to mention all of these guys that took early outs. That's helping us. That's helping the junior pilots at this time. On the last show, we mentioned the, 
the social media wars that are happening between senior pilots and junior pilots within the same group, which is, is, is absolutely ridiculous. It's no different than the, what the country is doing divided with our social part, with our political parties. Um, so what we need to do is come together and find the common ground and just have a little bit of sympathy for each other and, and, and just be there for each other. With that said, I truly believe that what Rob was saying earlier about it coming back stronger, it's not smoke, it, it, and it's not an opinion. This is going to happen. The numbers, if you look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. With the retirements, with the growing population, with the fact that this economy is going to rebound, the fact that you know uh, John uh, Gruber, who was on the show just a few days ago, was talking about transporting his legacy um, aircraft that he was building in Redmond, Oregon over to Illinois. And he rented a box truck and grabbed a couple hotel rooms along the way. And with a friend, uh, did a little three day trip to get this aircraft that he's building to his home airport. And he said, hotel room rates were astronomical. Well, of course, because they're hurting for they're hurting for our business. So as we open up, whatever the solution is, whether that's a vaccine, whether that's a shot, whether that's a, uh, a you know, wear the mask for the rest of your life until you, the day you die, or we become these you know video game characters with full face shields. Who knows what the, the solution is? But whatever the solution is, it's gonna come back because you know how how expensive was it to hold a a conference in, in a conference center in Vegas pre-COVID. Well, I bet you if I, ha if I had to have a conference with 10,000 people right now, I'd probably get a really good deal for the Absolutely. conference center and the hotel room rates and yeah. all everything else. So when it does open up and when confidence in the American traveling public, which I think is more important, when that confidence goes up, then I think this is going to rebound exponentially and they're going to need pilots now. They're going to need airplanes and, now. That's why we don't want to furlough. That's why these CEOs are on our side. They're not on our side because they want to make us feel like, oh, you're part of the family. You're we're needed. a part number yeah. and, we're, and we're a wage. We're, we're a dollar. We're, we're a liability. Um, so it's a cost that they're trying to save on the flip side, not now. So by keeping us all current, by keeping us all trained by keeping the airplanes ready to go wherever they're parked in the in the country when the confidence rises we open back up we can do it now instead of six months so that's the way i see it i don't know rob do you agree no, i i agree i agree man they uh i think uh, transglobal's stance kind of is the same thing they want to have their pilots ready to go and they in the uh, event that things return back to a, a rapidly return back to, you know, some resemblance of last year, which um, I like, I feel it's going to happen. I think uh, every airline is, is doing the best they can to conserve cash so that they can, you know, survive this, but they want to be ready to go the instant things start to open up. So uh, I don't know. What do you think there's Z? 
Yeah, I, I think the same exact thing. And, you know, I'm in a transglobal and the pilot group and the company met in the middle and they made a deal, you know, for some interim, you know, basically concessions. The way that that worked, we didn't concede anything on hourly pay rate. We didn't concede anything on work rules, scope or anything like that. Basically, the way that it works is that we're all taking a monthly pay guarantee hit and they divided the group and divided the pilot group into three groups. You know, the, the top third, the middle third and the bottom third. But basically on that, I'm kind of like tor- more towards the front of that, but not probably close enough to get into that into that middle group quite yet but uh my group is going to take the probably the most severe cut where it equates to roughly a 50 percent pay cut based on the fact that it's not your hourly rate that was cut it's the number of hours that you're guaranteed per month now the thing is is that there are a lot of exit triggers for this which protect us so for example if the company goes bankrupt we're not entering bankruptcy on this concessionary deal which is a very important thing because you don't want to start your baseline of negotiation behind the power curve when you're going into bankruptcy. Um, there's also other exit triggers too, um, you know, based upon revenues and load factors. If we can hit a percentage, a certain percentage of 2019 load factor and revenue, you know, combinations for either three or four consecutive quarters, then this goes away. There's a hard sunset in two years, no matter what, that's the longest that this can go. And actually we got a few things out of this too. We got, we got a small pay bump whenever this does sunset. Um, we got some improvements nice. to, um, to deadhead, like, like, like first class deadheads now are going to, are going to be the thing. Um, we get some, we have some, um, improvements to long-term disabilities and actually we got some, we got some scope benefit on this deal as well. But the thing is this, a lot of people are looking at it saying, you know, well, you know, we took a concessionary contract, this divided the pilot group. And well, I don't think there was any way to come out of this without in some capacity dividing the pilot group. I hate to say that. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. You know, at the same time here too, and, and you know, I'm not a cool a guy who drinks the company Kool Aid and it's just rah rah company, do whatever they say. I'm a fair guy. You know, if the company comes out with something fair, I'll I'll entertain it. If they come out with something that's unreasonable, you know, to me it's kind of dead on arrival. But they came out with something that okay, with the with the nine different exit triggers that we have. Okay, that's reasonable. I can work with that. And at the same time too, yeah, I don't want to take a fifty percent hit on MPG. But, you know, hey, if there's no one flying right now, the company cannot sustain paying everybody. It's an inevitability. And I think that's the that I think that's the big headline right there is the company's not going to survive if they continue to operate, you know, with the the amount of money that they're losing per day. So these measures help the company and help us. You know, at the end of the day, the P&L is what matters most. And you mentioned I think is that. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, was just, I was just going to finish that just add to it. I think that, that our, that our union leadership, you know, representing the pilot group showed a lot of wisdom based on experience. They sat down and said, okay, let's think about every way that if we made a deal, we can get burned. Okay. Bankruptcy. Or what if the company holds back and other companies start flying? Right. So we have something in there. One of the other exit triggers is an industry true up. So if other companies start adding flying, we have to match that, you know, they can't hold back to just try to squeeze us a little, you know, so they thought about these things. And at the same time, too, I think the company demonstrated good faith. I think that they looked at this and said, "Okay, we're in uncharted territories here. We need all hands on board. No tricks, you know, no gamesmanship. Okay, we need a deal that's fair. And we know that that this group's not going to take it unless unless it's fair. So I think they showed good faith. And I think that the union showed a lot of wisdom and experience in doing this. I mean, I'm not happy at the prospect of a 50% MPG hit. I'm going cash negative. If that happens, I'm, you know, at that point, just like the company, I am now, you know, you know, not tens of millions of dollars a day, but yeah, I'm now going into my cash reserve. 
so hopefully this doesn't last long. And, you know, and my optimism about this coming back is not based upon the bias from me wanting to see this rebound. It's based upon the numbers like you guys are saying supporting it. But the big thing is that the interim, you can't expect the company to keep shedding tens of millions of dollars a day. In this industry, you need to have not just a big cash reserve, but an unholy cash reserve. Oh, and this yeah. is exactly why, because things like this can happen. You know, yeah. and when you're hemorrhaging $25 million a day, which is the average cash burn right now for a lot of these airlines, I don't care how big your cash reserve is. You can't sustain losing $25 million a day for very long. Yeah. A lot so of people don't realize the airlines, airlines are hemorrhaging millions and millions of dollars a day. The operating costs for airlines are even during the best of times is huge. I mean, it is an exorbitant amount of money. And uh, it needs, you know, we need some kind of relief. We need some kind of, um, I, I don't want to say concession, but we need some kind of uh, adaptation to the current situation uh, financially to get to get through. Um, and we we never really said it, you know, but the government um, views airlines as essential you know, to the, to the commerce of the country and, and, you know, to, to the DOD and everything like that, mail and everything. So we need to move, we need to be, we need to stay in business and we need to be able to adjust to um, their needs too. So, um, you know, it's important that we be around for not only for, you know, our livelihood, but uh, you know, for the government and everything else uh, so that we can, you know, keep the country moving. Um, so oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And that raises the, the question that, you know, some people have, you know, have sort of brought, you know, to the to the sort of the center, if you will, now, which is, well, you know, we're a capitalist society, you know, and capitalism shouldn't reward companies that, you know, that don't do well and can't turn a profit. Why are we bailing them out? Well, let me address right. a couple of things on that. OK, yeah. first and foremost, what we're getting right now is through the CARES Act. And that's not to bail out the company. The companies are still losing at this point into the 20, 20 million plus dollar a day average, right? So the government's not supplementing those losses. What they're doing is they are offering some money to the airlines so that they can keep people on payroll and not payroll. dump that burden on unemployment. Exactly. Okay. That's to me, that's not a bailout. A bailout is basically, you know, you run your company into the ground through likes, through the likes of bad decisions or just taking like an extreme amount of risk. And then I think right off the bat, when you, when you use the term bailout, you know, you have people that remember what happened in 2008 when we, when we paid out all the big banks and they say, well, we shouldn't do that to the airlines. You know, well, the airlines didn't do anything wrong in this particular case. In fact, we were having, you know, arguably like the best run that this industry has ever seen. Right. Um, right. So, again, you know, this is this is helping people stay on payroll, not bailing out the airlines. The airlines are still hemorrhaging the cash. And here's another thing, too. When the airlines were, you know, quote, bailed out after 9-11. All right. Let's let's put this in perspective here. You know, the airlines were given money to survive because similar thing, the airlines didn't do anything wrong. Something happened that was well beyond their predictability, let alone their control, that basically took them from a position where they're making money hand over fist to just like that. They're hemorrhaging tens of millions of dollars a day and you can't sustain that. So the government Overnight. stepped in yep. and said, right. And they said, all right, hey, we'll we'll float you a little bit here. But what not a lot of people realize is that the airlines paid that money back. Not only did they pay it back, they paid it back ahead of schedule and with interest. So to me, that's not a bailout. That's an investment because yep. you got your money back and you made a couple of points on it. So I'm not saying there's exactly. a bias for what I do, but that's that's the reality of the matter. Um, yep. And speaking to your point, Rob, you know, this would probably make for you know a separate podcast. It'd be pretty interesting to talk about this. But 
no one really stops and realizes how capital intensive it is to run an airline. You know, like yeah. people hear, well, if they're losing $20 million a day, that's their problem. That's because they're stupid and they don't know how to run their company. Well, no, well, if you know what actually goes into, I mean, let's just look at the debt servicing alone for an airline, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, just because you're in a downturn does not mean that your creditors don't still expect to be paid, you know? And if you actually look at what airlines profit, before this happens, this industry was doing the best that it has ever done in the history of its existence, getting somewhere between a 10 to 15 cent on the dollar pre-tax. And that's pre-tax, mind you, profit margin, right? That's yeah. a horrible return in any business except an airline because yeah. and the airlines, that's the best that they've ever done. Historically, it's between two and five cents on the dollar. And again, that's a pre-tax margin. Yeah. I mean, stop and think about that. Every dollar of revenue that you generate gross, you're lucky to profit between two and five cents historically, and then you pay taxes <laughs> on top of that. Right. And that's, and that's not because of bad decision-making. That's economic that's reality of how is. this business works. Yeah. I mean, if people really stopped and thought about, about what goes into this, you know, I mean, okay, if they even bother to think about it, they think of the, about the big, t- the big ticket items. Okay, you have to buy airplanes, and uh, there's fuel expenses, and then there's labor costs. But what do you think insurance costs, right? I mean, what do you think maintenance costs? You're talking about buying an airplane that has a unit cost just for a narrow body of tens of millions of dollars per unit. And you have airlines that have to have hundreds of them. And then per the average, the average airline is going to spend probably two to three times that unit cost over its lifetime in maintenance of that, of that asset, right? Then you've got, I mean, just look at the training center, for example. Training. I always tell yeah, people- training. Not even just training, not even training itself. What do you think the electric bill is at the training center every day? What do you <laughs> oh, think? I know. How, much, how much wattage do you think it costs to run one of those simulators, let alone and, 40 of them? And the air conditioning to keep those things cool. I was just going to say, what do you think the AC bill is every day? <laughs> yeah, every simulator has its own, uh, what they call the, the computer bay, right? And it's a room, usually a 20 or 30 by 30 room. Mm-hmm. And it looks just like a server farm. It's this full of, full of computers and servers and the air conditioning and the lighting and the techs that there's a tech for each simulator just to make sure because the giant computer program that has multi-million dollar hydraulics and visuals and everything else and yeah. fire suppression. I mean, like you said, basically like, what was the name of that movie? The, with the, the Whopper 1000 <laughs> war games, war games. It's like having thousands of those Whopper computers in a building. And that's what it takes to run these simulators. And that's just each uh, simulator. And that doesn't even account for the cost of the simulator. And those Sims run 22 hours a day. At least they do at legacy. I'm sure that most yeah. of the other uh, major airlines have these Sims running around the clock because two hours a day, it's for maintenance and they have to download yeah. and upload updates and, and whatnot and, and upgrade that. software and take care of, you know, going through inspections. No different than the aircraft, the aircraft, you know, you have a, a 10 or 20 or $30 million airplane that is running 20 hours a day on average, uh, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more depending on the fleet and the route. But the other time, the other downtime is maintenance performing face checks and and repairs and and i mean as you mentioned z the complexity of running an airline in the united states and around the world really is it's like its own city i mean if you stop and think about it it's huge and i've always said that running an airline or the the health of an airline mirrors the health of the economy and not just yeah, in the U.S., indicator. but yeah, around the world. So keeping us healthy. And like you said, it's not a bailout. It's a payroll protection program. 
what you're doing is you're keeping people off welfare. You're keeping people from having their house foreclosed on because, you know, everybody's personal finances is their own business. But, you know, most people, I think in the country, last I read was has about four months of money in savings or on credit cards that they could use temporarily yeah. to, to kind of float it's even that much after that, yeah, you know, especially, you know, when you're a pilot yeah. and you have a big family and, you know, you probably have a, yeah. a pretty nice house. And so after that, what happens? Then you go into foreclosures. Well, yeah. unemployment foreclosures, all of these things don't show up immediately. They show up nine months down yeah. the road. I think we're in yeah. for a rude awakening in this economy yeah, in a, in a few months. I was going to say, I'm, I'm anxious to add this to your point is that, uh, you know, keeping these employees employed, you know, I, I forget how many we, we were talking about nationwide, but throughout the whole industry, it's like, what, 80,000 employees throughout all the airlines are, are getting furloughed, not just pilots, but, you know, everything else. And then for every employee, it equates about 10 10 workers outside of uh, the airlines, which may get laid off. So, you know, all this, this payroll stuff is to keep those airline employees employed. That's, that's key because what's going to happen here in the next couple of months, we're coming up on the holidays and things like that for the economy to, to keep moving and survive and then, and improve all the, you know, you're going to want to go out and spend your money for gifts and, you know, and things like that. So for these airline employees to, they need that money to, to turn it back into the economy with their gifts, their their travel, you know, all that stuff. If they're unemployed, that's, you know, 80,000 plus people in the country that are not going to be putting money into the economy. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and you know, they're going to be cutting, they're going to, and not only that, they're going to be cutting services. You know, Hey, I can't, I can't have that true green guy come to my house anymore. I can't afford it. You know, I can't have like the guy cut my yard. So there's going to be other, you know, jobs outside of the airline industry. People are going to be losing their jobs there too. So it's, it's a domino effect. The airline industry employees that the, the five M are talking about right now, the five mass media major outlets, they're talking about numbers like, oh, 80,000 or 100,000 or 110,000 airline employees that would benefit from a payroll protection program. That is the tip of the iceberg that we can see. What we don't see is the mass of the iceberg underwater. Like Rob was saying, you have everything from cabin cleaning services, contracted out catering, fuelers and fuel trucks and, and, and beyond that the airport employees, airport electricians, airport police, and beyond that, it goes, it keeps going in layers and layers. We're talking about maintenance facilities. We're talking about manufacturing of aircraft parts, because when you park half your fleet, that means you're doing half the maintenance. That means you don't need to buy part number 447 XYZ anymore because that part's not needed. So manufacturing is going to go down. And we're not just talking here in the US, we're talking globally, even though we're talking about what's happening to us and what's affecting us, this is happening globally. So the the iceberg is much bigger under the water, what we don't see. So it's the trickle down effect. We've all been kind of saying the same thing. And that's why this, the payroll protection program or the the, the P2P is so uh, important here. 
And, you know, let me let me clarify one thing here, too. You know, there's got to be limits here. I mean, this can't go on forever. You know, sure. now, I mean, I think that we are close to a vaccine and I think that a vaccine will be a game changer. Now, some people might disagree with me, but, you know, where you had said a second ago that, you know, airlines are kind of like market indicators of the economy. I mean, go outside. And I think that, you know, if you look at COVID, I think that you look at people's behavior as market indicator of really where people are on COVID. And I think that a lot of people, I mean, I'm seeing people that, you know, they're going out and they're trying to live their lives as normally as they possibly can. Like right when this thing first hit, I mean, like you, you went outside and you thought you were in some sort of post-apocalyptic world. Nobody was on the street. Nobody was driving. Nobody was that going was to crazy. stores. Now it's like basically normal, except for the fact that everybody's wearing a mask. And, yep. you know, even in a lot of situations too, people go to the beach and, you know, they're outdoors. They feel a lot more comfortable to not have a mask on, but they're going to the beach. They're not wearing a mask. They're, they're being as normal as they possibly can. They're going to restaurants and sitting down and not wearing masks. Again, people, and what I'm trying to drive at here is I think people's behavior right now is a market indicator of the fact that they are over this, oh my God, we are all going to die because of this thing. I think that we figured out that, you know, hey, Certain groups, you know, based upon age or health conditions are at far more risk than, say, a younger person. And yep. based upon that, I think that if we can get a vaccine, and I hate to say it, and I won't go off on this tangent, but the vaccines are being politicized now. Um, All, of you know, in my All of it. Yeah. You know, look, the, the FDA is not going to allow this to go out there if they think people are going to get sick, let alone die from this thing. Okay. I mean, politics aside, and I think, and people, people raise the point too. Well, why do you think it takes two or three years to get a vaccine? I'll tell you why it's because of red tape and bureaucracy. That's why. And you know, this administration has cut through that. Okay. And we're at the point where we're going to get a vaccine, but the the FDA is not going to let this out unless it's safe. So I think that between where, you know, the market indicator of where people are based on behavior as well as just the fact that if we get a vaccine, I think we're going to see things open back up. And, um, you know, the thing is, okay, we can't go on forever with this, but I think we're on the precipice of a vaccine. One more round of this is the game changer to get us to where we need to be. I, I really believe that. And let me add one other point over here, too, is sort of relative to what we were talking about a minute ago with bailouts and whatnot. Again, this isn't a bailout. This is payroll protection. And even when the airlines were, quote, bailed out post 9-11, they paid it back and they paid it with interest. So it wasn't a bailout. It was an investment. But even still, what not a lot of people realize, when you buy a ticket and you look at your airfare, I've heard numbers as low as 20% and as high as 30% that that airfare that you're paying, somewhere between 20 and 30% of that is going right to the government. And we're not talking about sales tax. It's going to supplement the TSA, the FAA, the local port authorities are getting a piece of that, right? And I yeah. believe the DOT and the NTSB might even be getting a little chunk of that money too. Yeah. So my Very argument, not my argument, it's just, it's my assertion here because it's factually true, is that in a way, the airlines, I'm sorry, yeah, the airlines supplement the government as it is. So, hey, Very you know, good observation. Why not have it work both ways? You know, we're paying a good chunk of, of the government's expenses here with regard to certain things when times are good. So, hey, when times are bad, uh, I don't think it's out of the question to float us on payroll, let alone maybe give us, you know, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a, a temporary bridge loan at, say, prime plus two or three basis points. That's not out of the question. Yeah. yeah very good point. Yeah. Excellent. And, and Matt, you know, I really think that here we are, an aviation podcast talking about the journey of today's aviator and the challenges they expect. And we've, we're pretty much got this, uh, you know, discussion going on where, you know, I find Folks, this, this is the conversation we have in the cockpit a lot. 
You know, when just, we're flying around. Say, this is this is a, this is yeah. this is two pilots flying cross country right now. This is these are some of the conversations we have, whether we agree or disagree with each other. You know, this is what we're talking about. This is this is it. The only the only thing that's different is it gets interrupted by a radio call or you know, <laughs> then, you know in between it's like uh, no, yeah. you know what? No, hit line select uh, three left, then execute. Okay, that's yeah. why I didn't do that. Did, did you get the last <laughs> the last time and fuel? It? Yeah, okay, all right, great. I'm sorry. Where were we? Oh, we were on two or three basis points above prime. Okay, yeah, let, let's. I'm global Memphis Center. You still here? <laughs> Yeah, hey, Memphis, hold on a second here. We're trying to figure out the debt ratio if we pay three percentage points or two percentage points above prime, okay? Stand by. Stand by. I'm in the middle of a checklist, yet. damn it. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, stick around for the second half of Squawk Ident right after the break. See, you know, this is absolutely amazing conversation. I'm really happy that that we were able to share this today. Um, I want to get back a little bit to this and what how this is going on. But I just wanted to wrap up your journey here before we kind of move on to some of the other questions that I had for you. And Rob has a few, I know, as well. In 2015, you got selected on the first round draft at Trans Global. How did that happen? Uh, well, they actually traded up for me. Uh, they traded two JFK landing slots and a used APU to American. So uh, that's how it works. Those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was. <laughs> Never mind. That's funny. I, I, they're going to trade something else for me. I, that's it. This is this is a family-oriented program. I, I won't say that. Yeah. I'll behave myself. But you know, uh, no, you feel free because I can always edit you out now. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, they, they were going to trade a couple. They were going to trade a couple of used jock straps for me, but uh, they said they said we, we'd be better off with two landing slots and a used APU. Yeah, well, you know, uh, that's a good trade, a very good trade. That's a great trade. Yeah. yeah so you, you I, ended felt, up... I felt very good, and I was at ninth overall in in, in the uh, in the first round. So hey, that's not bad. So I guess not a bad. Nine out of nine. Nine out of eight. Nice. And that's pretty good. You know, hey, first yeah. round. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I'm eight. on. I'm on the. the Back in the didn't I got cut, man? I don't know. Um, so in 2015, you went over to Trans Global, uh, an airline name that's fictitious that we use here on the show, obviously to protect the fact that uh, you don't represent your company in any way, and and we don't protect uh, we don't represent ours, and therefore we use these aliases here on the show, which is, you know, I think a wise decision. But you went over there, and you told me something earlier that kind of blew my mind. You went from the right seat of an Embraer to the right seat of a 7576 for Transglobal. Mm-hmm. How did you get through that process of going from an, uh, three stripes at a regional to three stripes at a mainline or a legacy carrier? So, you know, back in the day, the rule of thumb was no legacy airline was going to look at you unless you had a minimum of 1,000 hours turbine PIC. But the last decade, you know, and the lack of progression in the industry rendered, you know, and I'm sure both of you guys will, will attest to this, rendered a number of people, you know, in, in a situation where because there's no progression, they couldn't upgrade. And it was through no fault of their own. 
And I think what started happening at the time and Trans Global, I, I, I feel was was one of the first companies to try to, to try to give this a shot. And, and a lot of others shortly thereafter followed suit is I think that they realized, hey, wait a second, we've got a lot of great guys and gals at these regional carriers who got stuck in the right seat through no fault of their own. So they don't have the turbine PIC experience, but they're type rated. They're 121 seasoned and pretty hardcore seasoned at that. And they've been doing this job for, you know, upwards of like five to eight years for a lot of them. You know, typically someone goes to a regional and times are good. They upgrade in about a year and a half, two years. I mean, these people definitely have the seasoning and the experience. They know what they're doing. They can walk and chew gum at the same time. So, okay, back in the day, we used to look at turbine PIC as one of the qualifiers, but now that's not really a great qualifier. So let's look at, at some of these folks that don't have the turbine PIC. And I think that that's, that, not I think that is subsequently what they did. And I think Transglobal was one of the companies to realize at the, at first, and again, a lot of them followed suit that, you know, Hey, there's some really qualified people here. So, um, so I think, so as far as the lack of turbine PIC, I think that kind of answers that. Uh, and then, yeah, it, I'll tell you, man, it was a big jump going from, you know, an Ember 145 to a 7576, um, you know, any transport category jet airplane, whether it's, you know, whether it's a regional jet, you know, or a triple seven, you know, it doesn't want to go down and slow down. Momentum management is the real tricky thing. And I would say for me, transitioning to that airplane, that was the real tricky thing to learn is that, you know, you've been flying the Ember 145 for seven and a half years. You can fly that airplane almost instinctively because, because you're so good at it. And then you get to this other airplane, which is a big airplane, a lot more momentum, a lot more energy, but a very overpowered airplane at the same time. It's really just energy management. That was the biggest thing, getting used to the 7576. I'd say it takes at least a good 500 hours to get to the point where you are really rock solid, comfortable with it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, there's, you know, there's also some other things too. You know, the Ember 145, you know, at Sandpiper, you know, being a regional carrier, you know, regionals are a lot more cost conscious. So I remember that the automation on the 145 at Sandpiper was a lot more basic and primitive. You know, now you get into this airplane that has this really cool thing called VNAV, which is like this, you know, it's like this great mystery to figure out VNAV. So you're having to deal with, you know, with learning how to do a descend via arrival on VNAV with all this, you know, massive amount of energy behind you. And then, okay, wait a second. Why isn't this thing doing what I wanted it to do? Wait a minute. Hold on. I got off the path. It went into VNAV speed. Wait a minute. We're getting too fast. I got to, I got to, I got to get the brakes out now. Okay. Well, if I put the brakes out, you know, how aggressive do I need to get? When do I need to get that aggressive? So that was the biggest challenge in, in getting to the seven five, but I'll say two things. Transglobal has an awesome training program. The people there were great um, in training. It was a little overwhelming because the thing about 7576, you know, it is an older airplane when you really stop and think about it. And we have so many variations of them. You know, we had 757 200s and then we had 757 200s that had both Pratt and Whitney engines and Rolls Royce. Then we had 75 300s, 76 300s, 76 400s. So you have all these wow. variants and there's some subtle differences between, the, between them. So you're trying to, trying to master all that as well as manage this airplane that's a beast of an airplane that you're not quite used to with automation that you're not quite used to. But the training program was great and the people there were excellent. I mean, I will say this, there were a number of times that I felt like a little overwhelmed and, you know, they'd say to you all the time, you know, how do you feel? Do you feel like you're completely overwhelmed? Do you feel like you, you knew, le you know, less today than you knew yesterday? Yeah. Perfect. You're right where you need to be. Trust me. You know more than you think you do. It's all going to work. Uh, yeah. And it did. It all came together at the, at the end of training. And you really do know more than you think. And then I got to say, a lot of the captains that you fly with, 
or very seasoned people who they, they really, you know, said, Hey, yeah, no, I get it. You know, you're, you're new. This is a tricky airplane, you know, here, let me, let me show you something. This little thing about VNAV that they don't show you in the schoolhouse and it works really well online. And, you know, that type of stuff, you know, like here, double clutch this. Now that the means, VNAV will yeah. recalculate itself and like, Oh yeah. All right. It's, I mean, it's not like a thing you're not supposed to do, but it's just one of those things that, you know, that, you know, you learn that on the line and, and it's a technique that works. And you put that in your mental toolbox and you remember it for the next time. And eventually just repetition, you know, like, um, like I can remember going into San Francisco was a little bit intimidating. Same thing with LA because they're always bringing you in high and they're bringing you in fast. And, you know, like, okay, I was, I was a little bit nervous about that, but you know what it is? You do more of that, you know, it's, you know, you set it up. So it's like, okay, you know what? I want to fly the leg to LA because I want to get in that situation where they're bringing me in high and fast. Cause I want to get the repetition of knowing how to do this. And, you know, as opposed to, yeah, you know, I'll take the leg going back to New York, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but when you do that and, and you get the reps, you get a lot more comfortable. Like I said, right around 500 hours, I felt really good in the airplane. Yeah, nice. that's a common uh, hours we talk about uh, that quite a bit on the show. Uh, you know, it takes a good three, five or 800 hours, depending on the equipment you are and your experience level to really by the before you can say, yeah, I, I know the airplane, I can fly the airplane. And you're and you're always learning you're always continuously oh, yeah. finding out something new even after decades of being on the same equipment or being back on that equipment you know you're always learning some of the nuances on the bus uh we call it uh, peeling the onion you know you get on the airplane and you get to learn the shell of the onion and the, and the outside layer and you're like oh i can fly this airplane great and then you get to the point where something happens and you realize oh crap there's another layer under this onion and okay now i gotta learn this new layer a little bit more in depth more to the core of this airplane. And like you said, it's, it, there's a lot of variants, a lot of different types, a lot of different engine uh, configurations. So yeah, it's a lot. And especially going from an Embraer 145 with a relatively simple flight management system or FMS, and then you're getting thrown into one of the more complicated flight management systems that Boeing puts out because of all of its features. And now you're, you're being introduced to not just VNAV, but auto thrust and all kinds of, you know, improved uh, radar displays and so many more ICAM or ECAS messages yeah. to, to contend with and all the new policies and procedures having flown a relatively simple jet going into an extremely complex uh, jet is, is yeah. pretty difficult I'll, I'll to do. An, I'll, I'll throw another thing into the equation too, you know, and um, it's just transitioning to the airline is, is a little, is a little bit tricky too, because, you know, different airlines it's funny you know like there were sandpiper was almost a carbon copy of legacy in some ways you know in terms yep. of procedures yeah, callouts really profiles you know what they called certain things like i remember at sandpiper you know after you take off you go into the a cars or actually it would print out automatically you'd get a flight prog right well we you know we don't call that a flight prog so i remember like the first couple of times you know i'm asking like uh, hey how do i print a flight prog a what and you have to explain <laughs> what it is so there's a lot of like these cultural things too that when you go to this sure to this new carrier, it's the same thing, but you have to learn their language or you have to learn, you know, their system of doing things. And what I would liken it to, not that I have the personal experience of this, but I would imagine it's probably like if you're a quarterback in the NFL and you're playing at Miami and you get traded to Dallas, okay, you know the mechanics of how to take a three-step drop and throw to the Z receiver on a slant, okay? But Dallas has a whole new verbiage for that. They have a whole new system of checks, alerts, and protections, and this and that. Triggers. You have to learn that language. <laughs> so it's you know the mechanics of what to do, but you have to learn their language and you have to learn their culture. So there's a little bit of a learning curve happening there, as well as learning this new this new airplane. 
And then, oh, here it gets even better. Um, now you're going international too, and you're doing ETOPS. So you've got all this, you know, all this oceanic stuff that you got to stay, that you have to start, you know, learning. And that can be really tricky. I mean, I'd say it takes at least four good Atlantic crossings. You know, your your first one you're going to do on IOE. Your IOE check check camera will walk you through it, and you'll be like, oh, okay, that was an eye opener. Then your second one. You're, you're kind of relying on your captain a little bit like, all right, so, hey, this um, uh, CPDLC thing here, uh, is this logged on the right way? And I, who do we call first at this point? And then, you know, you're, you know, then what you notice is on the third one, like, okay, wait a minute. I kind of know what to do now because I remember that I did two of these before. And I'd say by your fourth one, you're like, okay, cool. I got this. But it takes a lot of that repetition. So you have a lot of things. You have the cultural thing, the airplane, and then the ETOPS and the international procedures. You know, in each, and a lot of these international destinations are a little bit different. You know, things like when you go into the UK, you know, like when we fly, but yeah, when we fly here in the US, you know, you're going into wherever, you're going into Dallas, you know, okay, we just send out of, out of the route environment into the terminal environment and we're proceeding up towards the final approach unless we get told to go into holding. Well, in the UK, that's kind of reverse. You go into holding unless you are told to proceed inbound. So you have to, you know, anticipate these things are going to happen. And, you know, it's not, you know, there's different parts of Europe and different parts of the world that do different things. So it's, it's figuring all that stuff out too. It's, it's challenging. It's, you know, you definitely have your hand full. Your and hands you, full. you went over there in 2015. How long were you on the 7576? Uh, I was on that about uh, like three and a half years, something like that. What was the most uh, challenging uh, destination that you had to fly into? Most challenging one. Um, I don't know that it was so much the most challenging destination. I'd say the most challenging airplane was the 76400. The 76400, you either love the airplane or you, you don't quite love the airplane. And I was definitely more of the latter. I didn't really like the 76400. It was um, when you talk about, you know, energy management and, you know, learning the different, you know, the different aspects of automation. 76400 was, it was a real bear. And it was a very senior airplane too, so I didn't get to fly it that much. Mm. But uh, the one that I really loved the most was the 75200 with the Rolls Royce. That was, that's without question, my favorite airplane. But yeah, I don't know that it was, it was so much a destination. Like I said, I mean, San Francisco and LA, because they bring you in pretty high, pretty fast. It's challenging. But once you get good at it, it's actually kind of fun doing those approaches going in there. And what about your favorite uh, international layover? Venice. Only got to do it once. And it was for all the wrong reasons. But I'll tell you, great overnight, great city. I'd say we're the most beautiful city I've ever seen. Ah, bravo. Te piace Venezia, eh? Did you ever go on a... Yeah, it sounds uh, funny. I think someone said that over there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I said, you like it the Venice, you. huh? <laughs> and how long was that layover? I read that sign somewhere in the terminal. <laughs> how, long, how long was your layover? Uh, that was a 24. Most of our Europe's or 24-hour layover was pretty standard. Yeah. And, and now that you've transitioned over to a new type, what can you tell me what made you decide to change uh, aircraft type you know it was it was more of a quality of life move so i was in reserve 7576 most of the time there, there were a few months that i held the line and i still have no idea how or why even at my seniority i got a line like those like two or three times that it happened to me um for a while reserve was great until one day someone at headquarters did something and flipped a switch and reserve was no longer good. And when you're a commuter and you're on reserve, there's a, there's a lot of things you get to account for. So it was basically, you know, basically, um, you know, international reserve as a commuter was great. It was like a country club, you know, it was a good, it was a good ratio of sitting long call and then, Oh, here's a really cool trip. Oh, and it's with a really cool captain. I like flying with this guy. Yeah. I want that trip. I'll go in tomorrow for that. 
um, it went from being great as far as that to all of a sudden it, like I said, just one day, a few years back, someone flipped a switch and yeah, it wasn't so cool anymore. So I said, you know what? I can be like 41, 42% on the 737, you know, and pick the overnights that I want to go to and hold a good line. Yeah, I think I'll go try that. Mm. Is the 73 uh, domestic uh, division or? Yeah, pri- primarily, yeah. So I know some airlines had, you know, international and domestic. You know, we, are, we cover everything on, on both. So, I mean, 73, I mean, we do Caribbean, we do Mexico and, you know, in Canada. I mean, when I think international, I think, you know, to me, international is you're crossing an ocean. But yes, technically that would yeah, be considered sense. international and you, and you do it as well. And so how long have you been on the 73 now? Just about two years. And how'd that adjustment go going from a 7.5 to a 7.3? So, you know, like the old saying goes, a Boeing is a Boeing is a Boeing. So, you know, the 7.3, you're kind of stepping back in technology. You know, when people look at, you know, at the flight tech on a 7.3 and they see all these flat panels, they think, oh, wow, cool. This must be like a really like, you know, complex and advanced airplane. And don't let the flat, the flat panels fool you. It's pretty much 60s technology behind those flat panels back there. I mean, the 7.3 is a good airplane for what it does. Um, my personal opinion, it should not have been stretched an inch beyond the 737-800. I think that's yeah. probably where Boeing should have limited that airplane out. But I mean, you guys fly the 900, right? Yeah, the 900 and the 900 ER, and yeah. you know, we'll be okay. getting the Maxes eventually. But yeah. um, I mean, the 73 is a good airplane, but you know, coming off the 75-76, the transition is easy because you know the Boeing system logic, you know, and engineering philosophy. Even though it's like stepping back a generation, is still there. Uh, and same thing with the automation. You know, VNAV works basically the same way on the on the seven three as it does on the seven five. So yeah. it was actually a pretty easy transition going to it. Yeah, Z, yeah. where are you based? Newark. You're based out of Newark. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're so still what, commuting then. Yeah, I am. Yep. Yeah. So what's a typical work schedule like for you? I, I mean, being on, I guess, your line or reserve. So this month I'm a line holder. And so back that up a little bit, you know, I haven't been flying for basically the past like four or so months because of everything that's been going on. And I actually dequalified on landings in June. So, okay. you know, I've been out of the loop here for a little while. And long story short, coming back into it just recently this month, when I went to go bid for, you know, bid for my line, I didn't stop and think, you know, about how much of a hit I was going to take in seniority. I mean, I'm still sitting at, you know, just about 40% in the right seat of the 737. But what we call the G line, which is basically the cutoff between reserve and line holder territory, my seniority relative to the G line is like razor thin at this point. Whereas before this, when you're sitting at 40 something percent, you know, you don't even think about that. So when I went and bid, I mean, I bid basically to, to try to work Monday through Friday with commutable trips. And if I can get certain overnights, I like doing a lot of Florida overnights in the winter. And then I like doing a lot of Boston overnights in the summer so I can be home. Right. Um, so I didn't stop to think that, Ooh, wait a second, maybe I should put some more protections in. And I kind of jammed myself up this month and ended up with a bunch of LaGuardia trips. Typically that wouldn't be a bad thing because between Boston and LaGuardia, Delta and American run that shuttle. Right. So, eh, okay, you know, based upon that, uh, or, you know, they're not running that shuttle, it's now getting pretty tricky to get into LaGuardia. So I'm having to use JetBlue. And fortunately, I was able to trip trade into actually some pretty good trips out of LaGuardia that can be commutable on both sides. So that's what I'm looking at this month. So it's a lot of two days, but the two days are great overnights. You know, there are a lot of two day Fort Myers trips. And uh, I think I got a Tampa sprinkled in there somewhere. You know, and we have great nice. hotel in Fort Myers. I really enjoy going down there. So 
Yeah, that's what I'm looking at this month. Yeah, but, you were there uh, yeah, a couple days ago in Fort Myers. How was how was that? Uh, Indeed, it was. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, it's a fun layover. Yeah, we got a we got a got a great hotel down there. They treat us really good. It's a nice resort. Flying with a great guy. A lot of laughs. Good time. Yeah, really nice. enjoyed it. Yeah. In your journey in aviation, you've pretty much hit the tip of the pyramid here. You know, here you are at a legacy carrier. You're done. All you have to do is stay safe, keep your medical going, and, you know, you have a long journey ahead of you at the tip of the pyramid. Right. What has been the biggest challenge to get to where you are now? And what do you think is the biggest caution that you have in the back of your mind to sustain this career through its longevity? So I'd say the biggest, the biggest obstacle to getting here is that, you know, flying for a regional airline and, you know, particularly being there in the last decade when there wasn't a lot of movement, there wasn't a lot of industry progression. You know, it's like that. It's like that. It's true. We talked about it earlier in, in the show here. It's, you know, it's trying to stay positive and that's where you learn to stay positive and optimistic. You know, you're going to encounter a number of people that they're not trying to be mean spirited to you. They're not, they're not trying to be negative in any way. They're, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to be realistic from their point of view that, you know, they're going to tell you, ah, yeah, you know, none of the legacy airlines are going to hire him. No, they're not going to hire you. They're going to take someone who's got 10,000 hours. You don't even have any turbine PIC time. And, and this, you know, you know, legacy doesn't hire people out of Sandpiper and they don't want us to work there. And, then, you know, it's uh, number one, a lot of those things are just not true. And obviously a lot of people from Sandpiper did get hired off the street by legacy as opposed to flow. And I remember that was one of the things you'd hear from people, oh, they'll, they'll never hire you. You're from Sandpiper. It's not in their interest to hire you because they're losing pilots over here, you know? So it's just trying to stay positive in the face of that, you know, like, for example, one of the things I used to do, like if I had a long sit in Chicago, you know, instead of going down to the crew room where oftentimes with Sandpiper, you're just going to hear nothing but negativity. Oh yeah. There was no shortage of negative. You know what it reminds me of is it reminds me of, you know, Lego pilot, you know, the guy there, you know, LOA 72 really screwed me and I voted no work, yeah. work, work management. Yeah. It's like, that's all you'd hear down there. Yeah. What I used to do is I used to go and just take a walk in the terminal. One, you're getting some exercise. And two, you know what? I'd make it a point to go and talk with people, you know, mainline pilots at American, mainline pilots at United. Just go walk the terminal because you never know. You may meet someone who is, you know, influential in the hiring process. And what I used to do is I used to carry a cover letter and a resume for every airline that I applied to in my bag. And I used to update them like every two to three weeks so that I'd have the most updated one because you very well may be walking the hallowed, ha- hallowed halls of O'Hare and you might meet the director of pilot recruitment for, you know, for American or for United. You strike up a conversation, have a cup of coffee, and they mention, oh, yeah, I'm in the hiring department. Oh, you know, hey, I applied. I'm really trying to get on. I, in fact, I have a cover letter and a resume for you. Can I give it to you? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. You know, in fact, I yeah, actually ended good. up getting an, inter- an interview at JetBlue that way. It's a oh, very nice. similar way to that. You know, didn't end up, I didn't end up getting it. That's, that's a separate story in and of itself. I went through the process at JetBlue. I actually got through the first, the first round of it, which um, it's a few years now. So I kind of, I kind of don't remember all the particulars, but it's like phase one and phase two. So phase one's the interview. And I got the email saying, Hey, congratulations. You passed your interview. Um, fill out all this paperwork and we're going to do a background check and get back to you in six to eight weeks. So I'm like, okay, great. This is awesome. So I filled it out and like clockwork, I get a phone call six to eight weeks later. They said, hey, we got all your paperwork here. Everything's good. Your background check's fine. Your Prius stuff is good. 
here's the deal. And this was the spring of 2014. They said, we're coming up in the summer months. And, you know, because we're going to have a big uptick in flying like we do every summer, we're going to take some instructors out of the schoolhouse and put them on the line this summer. So we were anticipating getting, you know, the group that you interviewed with into class sometime around the end of June, beginning of July. It's probably going to be more like August. So stand by and we'll get back to you. So I said, okay, great. No problem. And they did get back to me, uh, except it was in the form of an email saying, "Eh, you know what? We changed our mind. Thanks for playing. Of reapplying six months. No explanation. No nothing. And come to find out that happened to like 20 or 30 other people in the process. In fact, some number of months later, I went to, uh, to a JetBlue job fair and I got no explanation as to, as to why that was, you know, the, the reasoning, be, you know, why just, yeah, no, whatever, you know, we're not, we're now we're not going to hire you. And I brought all my paperwork with me and presented it to someone over there and I'm showing it to this particular person. And they're like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Like you're in phase one. Okay. Here's your background check. Yeah. Everything's good. I don't understand why they did this. And as I'm standing there, some other person, that other you know, job fair attendee says, chimes in and goes, excuse me, um, I wasn't eavesdropping on your conversation, but I couldn't help it overhear it. The same exact thing happened to me. And I was kind of coming here today trying to get some, some insight as to, as to what happened here. Yeah. And he said, all right, give me both of your names. I'm going to look into this. And I'm going to call you guys back. And well, let's just say I'm still still standing by my phone. Still still waiting. Got phone <laughs> oh, call. man. Right. And, and look, so I'm, if the I'm phone call right. does come, what are you going to say? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But and look, and I'm, and I'm not I'm not trashing JetBlue yeah. when I say this. So JetBlue is a great airline. I have a lot of admiration and respect for them. But in terms of staying positive, I mean, I'll admit like, oh, yeah, that was like that was like a devastating blow emotionally. Sure. It's like, it you know, like, anybody. whoa. I thought that I got this big break finally. And then, uh, like, you know, talk about just, you know, getting stuffed on the one yard line on fourth down of the Super Bowl. That's what it felt like. And yeah. then, you know what? Here's the silver lining. Transglobal called a couple months later and it all worked out. There you go. So nice. the universe has spoken back full circle. Right. It, yeah. it does. So stay positive, be prepared. And, you know, hey, when one door closes, another one will open. You know, it's just this is a gut check industry. You know, if you're not serious about doing this. Well, you alluded to it earlier. You know, I think Tony did um, that, you know, these situations um, are are, you know, we get put in these situations where, you know, if you quit, you know, you, you walk away you know, most people will do that. We'll just think about that same situation in the cockpit. You know, if you're putting a dealt with a situation that's, um, you know, emergency situation and you, you know, oh my God, we, this, this didn't work. I'm checking out, you know, you can't do that in the cockpit and I'm not going to hire somebody who's going to do that in the pot, in the cockpit, let alone, you know, on the ground, you know, checking out after the first, nope, sorry, we're not going to hire you or, you know what I mean? So right. yeah. if you get deflated after this first, no, you're in the wrong industry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You just, I mean, you just got to get, stay at it and keep on grinding. Sort of where we started off with this thing, you know, right now we are in a downtime, you know, but hang in there, you know, this too will pass. This industry, you know, has proven by many precedents here that this is what this industry does. It goes through, you know, it's cyclical. It goes through these things. It's a resilient industry. It will come back. People will need to travel. The industry will look different. There'll be consolidations and mergers. It's going to happen, you know, but the industry will stay intact. You know, as they say, we will live to fly another day. Yeah. You know, my, uh, I remember back in the day, you know, 30 years ago, I guess, maybe, uh, maybe not that long ago that, uh, I had a, uh, 
cultural anthropology teacher tell me one time that humans are nomadic. We travel, we move, we have since the dawn of time, cavemen and, and whatnot. And we're going to continue to do that because by nature, that is who we are. And the most efficient way to do that is through air travel. So yeah, you're absolutely right. This will continue and will continue for <laughs> for until man is uh, no longer a part of the universe. Um, see, I wanted to ask you a, a, a couple questions about technology. What is your go-to aviation app right now on your phone? On my phone? Um, let's see, what is it? So what, what, what's that app? What is it? Uh, what do we list on for other airlines? Is it uh, MyID Travel? Yeah, that's probably, that's probably my most frequented go-to aviation app on my phone. So, you know, getting me to and from work. Yeah. And uh, wow. do you have any nightmare commuter stories you'd like to share? Yeah, I've had a few of them over the years, and I think anyone who's commuted has. I mean, I can re I can recall one day finishing up in JFK, and it's a, it was a weather day, bad snowstorm. I think it took me from when we blocked in to when I got through the door at my house. It was twelve hours later. You know, it was just one. It was just one cancellation and one bump off after another to finally get out there. And then they closed down the the departure card or heading you know heading northeast. So all all, all northeast fixes were ground stopped. And then we got in the air, and now Boston had shut down, and we're hitting. You know, we're going to be getting it close to bingo fuel. I mean, I'm sitting in the back, but I knew in my mind, like, okay, and I know I know we got alternates, but you know, we can't be holding up here for hours. And then finally, we just barely got in. Uh, you know, based upon, you know, otherwise we would have had to divert, but, you know, I mean, that's, I think that's my most prominent one, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, I'd love it if Transglobal, you know, would put together a Boston base and, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully one day they will. Uh, if you can yeah. avoid commuting folks, avoid it, you know, right. but a lot of times it's unavoidable, you know, yeah. uh, just kind of is what it is. Yep. And yeah. Yeah. We, I think we talked about if you ever, if you move around, the system, the amount of times the company uh, rebases you or displaces you, you, like I think I counted on, uh, it was probably 12 times I would have moved in the last 12 years, right. 15 years. You, you can't do it. You just got to find a place you're willing to commute out of and pick, pick a place you're willing to commute to and just roll with it. And Rob, I mean, I remember when we were at Sandpiper, you know, Sandpiper is, you know, their official company position was, well, commuting is a lifestyle choice and it's yeah. your decision to be a commuter. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the reality of it is this, you know, bases come and bases go and so do equipment types. And just like you said, look at the fluidity of it. Just a dozen times over the course of you being at Sandpiper, you would have, it would have had to make some, some, some pretty significant changes. When you have fa a family, and a lot of pilots have families, and as a family, you have a second income, you know, from your spouse, that's contributing to your household income month over right. month. Okay. The issue now becomes just because you got bumped off of an airplane and you can't hold this base, you know, it doesn't mean that your spouse that has a job that's tied to that location is going to get bumped out of theirs. And just by happenstance, find a comparable job that pays the same and has the same, you know, hours and days off so they can take care of the kids for them to go and move. So, you know, the, the whole assertion that, well, commuting is a lifestyle choice. And I disagree with that. It's a lack of choice. And particularly, you know, like with regional airlines, and I think I touched on this earlier in the show, you're not paid a lot of money. And the expectation is that you live in base and they're asking you to live in some of the most expensive cost of living per capita oh, yeah. cities in the country. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you got to look at that. I mean, it's a give and take thing. And, I, and, and, you know, trans global, I think that they're re they're reasonable with commuters. They're fair. They get it. But um, I, mean, I, I do think that, you know, 
particularly with the regional industry, I think there needs to be more understanding, you know, and meeting the commuters halfway, you know, because it's not, it's not a choice. It's really a consequence that's forced on you and the whole, you know, well, just move like, mm, yeah, it doesn't really work that easily. Yeah. yeah. To LA, New York, Miami. <laughs> no way. Even Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Too, I mean, yeah. How, how can you afford a, a single family residence? And not in, to in diss those areas. I love those areas, but it's just cost of living is just right. astronomical. You know, yeah, it's, it's economic reality. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, you know, six, 60 grand a year there, you, you can't, you can't even be broke. You're, you're actually under what yeah. it takes to be at sea level. You know? yeah, I mean, and we're, we're making less than, you know, the firefighters and the teachers and all that stuff, especially on the first year pay, second year pay. Right. And those people don't even live in those cities. They have to commute in, you know, from other areas. So, I mean, it's crazy. You remember when they added the uh, clause in our uh, our FM one or our flight manual indicating uh, at the regional indicating uh, if you are collecting uh, subsidies from the government, do not show up in oh, uniform. Yeah. <laughs> because oh yeah, your pay was so low. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is you know, the, and that was one of the company's rebuttals at Sandpiper was you know, uh, well, you know, there's you know, there's people that are making less than you at this company that can afford to live there, and it's like, well, yeah, you know, probably through government subsidy. Like that's got to be the only way that that could be. And I'm not. Yeah trashing someone who's on government assistance. I don't, I don't want to misconstrue the wrong conception with that, but just enough speaking to your point. Now the company's like, you know, uh, you know, Oh yeah. I see other people are living there. Why can't you? And then right. they have this, you know, like, Hey, by the way, don't show up to, you know, to get government assistance in uniform. Like, Oh, Hey, oh, hold on. Some, some things here that are, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, diametrically opposed, shall we say? Yeah. yeah. You know? I, I, and I, I just went through the thought process, you know, when uh, we worked at a, uh, at Sandpiper after the uh, the bankruptcy and, and the mergers and all that stuff, you know, when they started closing down the bases in Boston and, you know, San Juan, Miami, I mean, we were all there for that kind of LA, yeah. you know, it, it, it forced a lot of people to commute. And I think, uh, you know, our, our union, um, you know, the, the MEC chairman uh, who's from your area, we all know him. Um, at the time, I think he did him and the, you know, the, the group of guys there at the union did a great job of negotiating a lot of, um, uh, tr uh commuter benefits, you know, yeah. like hotels, hotels and, and yeah. positive seats right. and all that stuff, he, uh, you know, which was, you know, kind of unheard of in the industry, you know, to the point of, you know, what we we're just talking about. It's, you know, Hey, it's a, you know, it's your choice to commute. Well, these people didn't have a choice, you know, that was keep your job you had to commute and right. you know, it was very, very awesome that that all worked out that way. Cause I think it's, a lot of people, you know, certainly funny, benefited from that. that. It's funny that you mentioned um, that particular person. Cause I was talking with him on the phone last night, mentioned that I was coming on your guys' podcast Oh, cool! and he's, and uh, you know, I said, I said, yeah, hopefully this becomes like a recurring like how cool for that podcast to have like you know kind of like Min was like a recurring character in Seinfeld although I like you know I don't want to I don't I don't want to be new yeah. here I mean this in this metaphoric example you know like it'd be cool I think for this type of podcast if you guys had you know like recurring roles from people from different airlines to you know hey what's the buzz at Transglobal what's the yeah. buzz at Acme or so on and so forth but yeah. I was talking with that guy last night and saying yeah hopefully this spins you know turns into something like that. And he said, "Hey, if they do that, and they want a um, they want a pilot from one of the ACMI characters, tell them I'll come on. So, uh, so he's a free agent. He's uh, he's okay. willing to play ball. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to talk right. about that after the show for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Reach out. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. So, in all your time uh, in this journey that you've had, 
what would you say has been the highlight? Honestly, I think just, you know, making it to the leg, to the level of working for a legacy carrier, it's like you alluded to, you know, you've, you've made it. And I mean, I describe it to people, you know, I like to use a lot of metaphors, a lot of different analogies, and particularly as they relate to sports. I said, it's the equivalent of making it to the major leagues. You know, you've progressed up from, you know, playing at the college level to playing, you know, triple A, single A, and now you are, you are at getting, you know, in the majors and not just in the majors, but, you know, you're playing for, and I can get in a lot of trouble for saying this as, as a Red Sox fan, but, you know, it's like putting on the pinstripes and playing for the Yankees, you know, like that's like, Hey, you've not only made it, but you know, you're in one of the front runner premier teams in the league. Now I'm going to deny that I said that as a Red Sox fan, but uh, I'm a Red hey, Sox fan too, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Nostalgia and sentiment and, you know, and that type of a metaphor is definitely on the side of, uh, of the Yankees. You can't say it's not. It's sure. like wearing yeah. the pinstripes. Yeah. Totally. And see, if you could go back in time and whisper in your own ear, just for a moment as a, as a younger self, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, I don't know. I really thought about that. You know, just uh, listen to yourself. You know, apparently listening to myself has done all right to get me, you know, to get me uh, up to trans global and, you know, the level of industry that I'm really happy uh, with being at. So, you know, maybe I guess just, you know, kind of, you know, expanding on what I was saying earlier, just, you know, have confidence in yourself to get through the difficult times, you know, avoid the noise, avoid the negativity. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, are going to are going to push those sentiments on you, not because they're necessarily trying to. I don't even think sometimes people realize that that's what they're doing to you. And I'm sure I'm probably guilty of that at certain times, too. Yeah, we all are. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, just just have at it. You know, like I said, if I listen to every little thing that I heard about, you know, you know, yeah, Legacy will never hire someone from Sandpiper. And now, you know, the you know, Legacy Airlines as a whole will never look at someone like you. You don't have the, the turbine pick time and the this and the that. And, you know, oh, they're not even going to hire, period. They're all going to go bankrupt. We're all going to be out of business. LOA 72 really screwed me. You know, right union you, you know fo hadn't yeah, stabbed me just, yet just wait right. <laughs> just wait yeah it's not over but yeah. no i mean if you get if you just get so consumed with that it's you know it's yeah um the metaphor that i use for stuff like that it's it's psychological warfare don't commit sure. psychological warfare on yourself really you know? i mean yeah yeah just just have at it. And uh, I think if you're trying to progress to that level, network, you know, I mean, carry those resumes and cover letters with you, update your, you know, update your stuff frequently, keep your logbook up to date. Like, I mean, me, I was ready to go for, for an interview like that, because I was that serious about wanting to get out of Sandpiper and get up to working at, at the legacy level. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you get an interview now you're like, oh my God, I got an interview. I got to prepare for this. And now I have to find my my birth certificate, my social security card. I have to get sealed copies of my college diplomas from the institution. Photocopies won't cut it. I need this, I need that. That was all ready to go. I had that in a little box, like basically waiting to go. I had the suit in my closet, you know, already pressed, waiting to go. Yeah. I had the resumes and cover letters in my bag waiting to go. I mean, be prepared because, you know, when opportunity knocks, it may not knock again, you know, or may not knock for a long time. So be ready at a moment's notice, be prepared. Yeah. Don't get caught up in that noise. I've heard people say also in, uh, other, uh, podcasts, people say, don't be afraid to fail. You know what I mean? And don't take failure as, you know, failure, you know, take it as a lesson. You know, this is something, a lesson learned, same thing in aviation. You're, there's going to be a lot of no's and you know, you're not ready yet. And you know, you can't do that. Uh, but 
you know, you just got to find another way, be like water, you know, flow, go with the flow, find the opening and, and, you know, use that to your advantage. Yeah. What do you call a thousand failures behind a success? Rob's life. A success. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Success. Yeah, isn't that how Edison made the light bulb? Figured out, figured out a thousand ways not to make it, and then he found the one way to make it. That's exactly. It. That's Something it. Like that. That's exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. See, if you can go back and uh, think about one person that made the greatest impact in your career in aviation, who would that person be? It's a good one. Uh, you know, I probably, maybe I should have prepared for these types of questions a little, little bit better. You know, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants as opposed to, as opposed to, if you listen numbers. to our podcast more often, these are the questions we ask everybody. No, just kidding, man. Go ahead. Um, no, you know, I gotta, man, I gotta really think about that. You know, th- there's been a few of them, um, along, along the way. Um, I don't know that I could narrow it down to one in, in that aviation realm. Uh, but mentorship, I think is really a big thing. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in it. In fact, I mean, I'm trying to spin up a little side business, you know, into, into doing sort of like mentorship and personal consulting, not just for aviation, but for a number of other things. Uh, so coming soon, some details will be out, uh, it's sort of a work in progress, which should be spun up very shortly. But no, I'm a firm believer in mentorship. And uh, like, yeah, there's one guy in particular that I, that I fly with at, at Trans Global. Great guy. Started flying with him on the, on the, uh, on the 757, become pretty friendly with him. And it's, he's a very, like, very learned individual. And, you know, kind of sidebar for a second, as crazy as this is going to sound, the first time I met this guy, like, I'm, I'm not even being funny. I, I, I thought this guy was nuts the first time I met him, right? Like, I mean, not like nuts dangerous, but like the first time I met this guy, it's just like, I don't quite know how to describe him, but he's, um, he's a character, but in a good way. And I gotta say like this guy seriously starts to grow on you after a little while and actually becomes like a very entertaining individual, but at the same time, an extremely knowledgeable guy. And he's the type of guy, like I said, you know, like I, like VNAV to me at first was like this, you know, like it was like the Holy Trinity. It was like this great mystery that, you know, could not have been understood by us mere mortals. At least that's how I perceived it. And I remember flying a trip with him and he was showing me all kinds of cool things like, you know, like, like, you know, like, uh, hey, you know, uh, right now, the reason why it's doing this is because you already started down on the initial descent. So it's left the, you know, the box left its cruise phase here. If you want it to recalculate a path direct uh, on the on the vertical profile, just double clutch this. I'm like, wow, like, that's really cool. Like that, like they never showed me that at the schoolhouse. He's like, yeah, it's just one of these things you learn on the line. And then you learn a lot of things from too about, you know, just the company culture and, you know, different things. And just, and, you know, I ended up really becoming good friends with the guy. And I talk to him on a pretty regular basis still. Uh, he's still in the 7576. Uh, still based out of New York. Um, so there've been, there been a handful of people like him that I've flown with uh, over the years, you know, and they're always good references to, uh, to talk with. You know, I remember in particular, um, this particular individual, he's passed away now. He was an old TWA guy who um, ended up at, at American. And I met him when I was, uh, when I was in training at Sandpiper. And uh, he was uh, very much a mentor of sorts. And um, he, uh, he flew with them for, uh, flew, ended up finishing his career, uh, over with American and, uh, you know, he's the type of guy that coming up the ranks would always call him up and, you know, Hey, what do you think about this? Or, you know, I'm trying to get hired over here. Do you know anyone that works in the recruiting department or anything like that? Or anything you can tell me or any information you can get, or, Hey, you know, what's going on, you know, right now at American with this, that, and the other thing. So a lot of people like that, you just, you, you end up making a lot of, a yeah. lot of contacts that you become friendly with and, uh, you know, you develop a lot of great relationships that way. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important to be that person 
as well as you know you've had a really good run so far and now you're in that position where now you can be that person and i know you mentioned uh, you know you really have a lot of affinity for the mentorship programs and the mentors and, and mentorees out there and, and that's really a lot of what this show is about it's about giving those interested in aviation maybe starting out in aviation or those just listening and and, and that are in it that like to hear it because uh, that's all we talk about, right? Like we mentioned earlier, work, 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 contracts. Um, yep. <laughs> but but that's really, the show is geared to getting the knowledge of what the journey entails, the challenges that are associated with it. And hopefully we're scratching the surface with that a little more with every episode. Now, you mentioned earlier on in the show, uh, some of the ways that uh, TransGlobal has decided to help mitigate the payroll issue, to help you know, suspend the idea of furloughs for a little bit longer. How has this COVID reaction affected you personally? Well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, I think initially when, uh, you know, like the whole world was in this, you know, shut down, everybody stay indoors, don't come out of your house, you know, oh my God, we're all going to die phase. It's like, you know, I mean, like the world like shut down and I, you know, I mean, human beings, like we're not meant to, it's a function in, you know, in, a, in an environment like that. So, I mean, that was like a little, that was a little strange to say the least to deal with it. And I can remember doing one particular trip. I think I was supposed to be doing a four day trip. And as I'm commuting out, I get the alert that, okay, there's been a pairing change. And I ended up with uh, basically one leg down to Fort Lauderdale stay there for three days and then fly one leg back. And <laughs> the first part of me is thinking like, whoa, this is really cool. Fort Lauderdale, staying at the W. Yeah, three straight days of this. This is going to be awesome until you get down there. And it's in the midst of this whole, the world is shut down phase. I mean, it was like, it was like, it was like living in some sort of like post-apocalyptic world. Like I actually remember going through the W in Fort Lauderdale, walking through there. And I'm like pretty much the only person there. Like literally, I, I'll take it back. The kid working the front desk was the only other human being that I saw for about five straight minutes, oh. right? And it's just the yeah. hotel is empty. And psychologically, like, that has an impact on you. It's like, whoa, like, uh -huh. what is going on in the world? Uh -huh. You know, it's like, there's nothing there. And then off in the distance, I can see, like, this one cruise ship that's anchored up a few miles off the beach just sitting there and, like, nobody around, nothing but silence and the wind rustling through the palm trees, sitting up at the pool and seeing this cruise ship out there again, just sitting around with like nothingness. And I'm like, Oh, this is like kind of creepy. And I ended up being there for about two straight days. And it's like, okay, get me out of here. I'm ready to go home. This is no longer cool. I thought this was going to be fun to be at the W for three straight days. Now it's not like, okay, I'm ready to go home. Yeah, so yeah, I, mean, I think everybody felt your that. first impression was yeah. beaches, booze, and Battlestar Galactica. And now, <laughs> now it's like <laughs> and bears oh. and beats. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, yeah it, thing, it was, man. it wasn't quite like that, you know? So I think everybody went through that phase of like, Whoa, what just happened in the yeah. universe? Like this it's a lifestyle very for different. us. You know what I mean? It's a lifestyle for us. You know, you go to these overnights and that's kind of your I don't know, maybe not for everybody, but for me, you know, that's kind of my get away from from you know the nuances of just life, you know, work of uh, being at home. I love my wife and kids, but going to work was like, yeah, hey, I get to go to New Orleans, I get to go to Fort Myers, I get to go to, you know, LA and all that. And, and, and go to these places for a short period of time, but I want to go out and, you know, go to a local brewery or, or place to get some good food, see the people and, and see the sights and sounds. And now when the, when COVID hit, it was, it, it turned in from 
I, I look forward to going to like, oh man, I got to go to this place. There's nothing open. There's you can't even get anything at the hotel restaurant. There's one right. dude working the whole hotel. It was depressing. It's getting better, but it it, it was just really depressing. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I mean, there, there was a period there where I'm, I'm just like, I don't even want to go in. Like, it's just, right. it's just going to be yeah. like a free ring circus. You know, it's going to be. You know, everybody paranoid to shake hands and then, you know, what are you doing without a mask on? And, you know, oh, yeah. And then, like totally. you said, you know, it's you go to the hotels and it's, you know, there's nothing to do. And if you can find something to eat, it's takeout only, bring it back to your room and sit yeah. there and, you know, sell gyms are closed and, you know, you right. can't go to a hotel gym anymore. Some of these have really nice hotels. And then Tony and I talked about this in a previous podcast you know, we'd go to some of these overnights and go to the gym, go for runs and stuff like that. And I guess you, you could still go out for runs, but some places um, like Hawaii, I guess now you could do it. But before, you know, there was things that you just flat out couldn't do, you know, and, and for me going to these overnights, th- that's when I did a lot of my workouts. Cause that's when I had the time to myself and focus, not have to worry about, you know, getting home to make dinner for the kids and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, things changed that, drastically. Yeah. That was our time. I mean, Unfortunately, I mean, we have actually had uh, information come down that here at Legacy, one of our crew members was uh, detained in Hawaii because they were sitting in the park by the hotel eating some to-go food. And according to their lockdown procedures for air crew, you can't do that. You can leave the hotel uh, at least up till now. And I know that's going to be changing here in the next couple of days. But up till now, we had to sign on this document. The National Guard would take your temperature on the jet bridge before you even get off the airplane. You'd have to sign a release indicating that you're aware of the um, not- flight crew um, isolation rules. And the hotel was closed to the public. The only people staying there, at least the one in Honolulu, uh, were the two legacy airlines flight crews the dallas crew and the la crew and, and the rest of the hotel was empty like you mentioned the only person there is really the person at the front desk you could leave to go get food or to do personal exercise by yourself uh so yeah. like y- you might have been flying together with you know the, the other pilot on the flight deck you know two feet apart from each other for the last six hours and you're in the the hotel van or the the van service with the rest of the crew. So now there's nine people in a in a small van, and you get to the hotel. But now when you go exercise outdoors in the fresh air, you had to do it by yourself. Solo. So, <laughs> yep, solo. So yeah. and and this was an issue, and they're really cracking down on it. So it's very yeah. scary. Uh, thankfully, things are starting to open up, and we're going to see because I keep hearing about this second wave and third wave and and second lockdown uh, and. Uh, it's fear mongering, yeah, I think. I, I agree with that, and and I'm not trying to get into a political tangent here, no, and I'll do the best I can to sort of <laughs> curtail and sort of focus my my comments here. But I I can't help but think that a lot of this is political theater and dramatization mixed with virtue signaling. And I'm not saying that I do not believe that there is that there is really a thing. Like there are some people out there that are saying like this is all made up. There's no virus. Okay, look, there is a virus. I yeah. will admit that, but. I can best describe it by, by saying this, okay? It is something, it is a thing, it warrants mindfulness and it warrants caution. Things like, you know, hey, stay six feet away from people where and when you can, okay? You know, like maybe carry a spray bottle of rubbing alcohol with you and wash your hands a lot more frequently. Okay, I get it, things like that. But I think that this is something that, you know, I mean, hey, you know, it's something that in reality is about this big. 
and we're being told that it's, you know, it's this big. Yeah, and absolutely. It's being, it's being epically blown out of proportion. And again, I think that there's a lot of politics, political theater and virtue signaling. And the net result of it is it's hurting the rank and file person. And again, go back to what I said earlier about the market indicator of human behavior. People are trying to live their lives as normal as they possibly can. And, you know, you have some people that like New York, for example, they just shut down three boroughs of New York, non-essential. I heard about that. Right. Because of a 3% uptick in reported cases. But okay, what about hospital cases? What not hospitalization? No, no, not ventilization, not Not death death. cases. It's like, you know, I mean, you know, there's people out there making the assertion that, well, Americans want to be safe, which is true, but Americans also want to live their lives too. You know, Absolutely. human beings want to be safe. Human beings also want to live their lives too. And I do believe that, you know, you can do two things at once here. And, uh, you know, I just think at this, that this stance, this overly aggressive reaction to it is harming a lot of things. I mean, I understand that there is a health issue here and people could, I get that, but there's also a consequence too to locking the world down. You know, I mean, you know, suicides are going up as a byproduct of drug addiction, you know, you know, um, domestic violence, alcohol abuse. And this is what happens when you force people to stay in. I mean, human beings weren't meant for this. There's another flip side to that. So anyway, I'll I'll end rant and exit my soapbox on that. That's awesome. But I was going to say, you know, there's 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 statistics. I'm sure there are statistics being uh, that are not being taken that are uh, way more dramatic or way more way higher numbers than the actual COVID cases themselves of mental health. And, you know, just think of all the kids that haven't been going to school. They're not getting their, you know, a lot of kids, uh, families depend on schools and districts to feed their kids, you know, going to school and, you know, no interest internet, education, the mental, I mean, there's so many, you know, different things that, you know, can be statisized. I don't know what the real word for that is, but are far more dramatic than actual COVID deaths and cases themselves. Yeah. Rob, even speaking to to that point right there, you know, I mean, like, okay, when I was a kid, like I would have been thrilled initially at the prospect, like, yeah, we're getting out of school. This is awesome. But then like, you don't, (laughs) right. You don't get, that's cool for a couple of days, but then you don't get to see your friends because, you know, like I remember like as a kid, like, you know, like, yeah, you griped about and belly ached about going to school, but like you got to see your friends and you got to, you know, play sports and, you know, hang out and goof off and kids need that. They need social interaction with other kids. Totally. And and then the other thing too is, oh, well, well, we're going to do virtual learning now uh you know hold on a second this this might work like okay like what we do like we do a lot of like distance learning for you know for certain things before we go to recurrent training and okay that works for a refresher training but for primary instruction does like, not substitute nah, that that does not no there's nope, no yeah. sub, you, you need the, you the don't want me flying your airplane without any real-time flying an airplane <laughs> right <laughs> right it's, you know if this distance learning thing, like it's one of these things that you can put a bandaid on it for maybe a month or two, but we can't have kids going to school. And I'm going to turn this into a, you know, a talk show about other things, but like, no, you just, kids need to be in an environment with other kids where they can learn. It's like, you know, it's kind of like how we, you know, in our industry, we've gone from, remember the old ground school, like the ground school days of, you know, you have 20 people in, a, in the classroom Monday through Friday, nine to five. And now we transition to the AQP method, which is really cool of this one-on-two environment with you and your, you know, your stick buddy and the instructor, you know what I'm talking about? You, you, yeah. I assume you guys we do, do the same, same thing, yeah. legacy. Mm-hmm. All right, it's pretty much the whole industry shifted to that. Um, and I think that's a cool concept and, and it works and it is quality training. But I do kind of miss the old days of when you had, you know, 20 people in a classroom because, okay, one, it built camaraderie, but two, somebody would ask a question and you'd say, 
Whoa, you know what? That's a good question. And I didn't even stop to think about that, let alone the fact that I don't even know the answer. Like, I don't know what I don't know. Like, cool, let's debate this. Let's talk about this. That's where real learning takes place. Yeah, exactly what I go through. Exactly. I I depended on those kind of environments to ask the questions that I didn't even know to ask. (laughs) Exactly. And all of a sudden it becomes like, wow, that's good to know, you know? Yep. So Z, I I was very... uh, interested and uh entertained with your youtube channel life by z what can you tell me about that so it's a channel that i started about a year a year ago and it was kind of more of a boredom thing um you know i've i've worked with some people you know over the years just trying to you know just informally giving them advice and you know they said to me and said hey you know you have really good advice to give you really good insights on things you know like you're thinking about maybe starting a youtube channel or you know maybe starting a business where, where you know where you can do something like this and i said you know all right. I've heard this from a few different people, maybe with a smoke, this fire type of thing. So I just kind of started playing around with the YouTube channel a little bit, put together a couple of little videos. Some of them are just, you know, me sitting there talking about different things. Um, you know, other things, it's, I don't know, me out in the boat going fishing or cooking something, you know, things that I enjoy doing. So it's just more of like a little passion product, uh, passion project and sort of like a boredom thing. But I'm at the point now too, where I'm trying to separately spin this off into, into starting a business, you know, where people say, Hey, you've got good advice. You've got good insight I'm trying to, you know, spin this into, I guess you would call it. And I hate using the expression life coaching. Cause I think that that term's a little bit too generic and cliche. I look at it as more as more as personal consulting. And, um, you know, that's just something that right now it's a little project I'm working on. Uh, I have a website that's in development should be coming out here very shortly. Um, it'll be lifebyz.com Once it's all spun up, YouTube channel is just called life by Z. Um, but yeah, you know, that's basically what I'm doing. You know, as pilots, I think that, you know, we, we have the luxury of having a little bit of downtime when we're not flying the friendly skies, so to speak. And, you know, based upon that, you know, why not have a side hustle and particularly a side hustle where you can make a positive impact on people's lives by, you know, by mentoring and by being, you know, a life consultant of sorts. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. And I really like the, uh, your video that has the most views right now from what I can uh, gather here is winning at life eight thoughts on coronavirus. I mean, right. How, how did uh, yeah, you come I up think, with that I think idea? All 200, all 200 views. I, I think, you know, it's, and, and this channel really is kind of in its infancy and I really haven't pressed very hard to, you know, market this to mass numbers of people just yet. Cause I wanted to kind of get, get comfortable with making videos, editing them, putting content out on, on a more consistent basis. Of course, that's what I got to do. I have to be more consistent with putting content up. But, you know, now basically, like, I think that video was just kind of when COVID was becoming like a real big thing. I just said, well, hey, you know, I mean, this is the, the hot button thing that everybody's talking about. Why not just put a video together and, uh, you know, and just do something with it? So, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'm at with that. Nice job. Yep. Yeah, between that and when you uh, bake that lobster, I really like that one too. Yeah, you like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm that a might foodie be myself. That I might, so, I might want to do. Oh, yeah, as well as all kinds. What do I have? I have uh, lobster on there. I've got uh, Sunday gravy, yep, uh, yep. linguine fruit de mar. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. You know, it's, you know, if you're trying to, trying to cook to impress someone, you may want to check the channel out over there. And I'll tell you what, as far as cooking, believe it or not, simple things, you know, I mean, people think you got to do these really elaborate, intricate things that take a lot of skill and a lot of time. That's actually very basic things, you know? Yep. I married a culinary school grad, so. Congrats, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The way to Italians hot is through their stomach. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I do. Well, Z, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and, and discuss everything that's going on with 
how the coronavirus has been affecting our industry. Your journey has been a spectacular one to learn about, and I wish you all the best in your future over at Transglobal. Uh, and just, hey, thanks for, for sharing your insights. Some really good stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great talking to you guys. You know, I always enjoy getting out here and talking shop about the industry. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. You know, look forward to coming back sometime. And uh, you know, thanks for flying Z and Transglobal. And we look forward to seeing you again on your future travels. Absolutely. And if anyone wants to follow you on your socials, so where can they find you? So, like I said, it's, uh, coming soon will be lifebyz.com. Okay, that's going to be the, the website that I'm working on, which is under construction as of right now. And I got to admit, I'm a little bit behind the power curve on uh, on setting up a formalized Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram account. So, all those things will be coming under the auspice of Life by Z, coming soon to a social media platform near you, and coming very soon at that. So, check back frequently. Wow. Well, thank you again for sharing uh, your story with us. And I just want to say thank you for all of the listeners out there. If you're enjoying Squawk Ident, we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can leave us feedback. You can contribute to the podcast and help us keep the podcast going. You can also leave audio feedback, show topic ideas, and you can see many of the photos that we've shared from the flight line. Under the guest book tab, you can see photos of our special guests and their journeys in aviation as well. Facebook and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast, or YouTube and Twitter users can find us under the Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. We encourage you to support us on YouTube with a like, subscribe, and share. There you can see short video clips from the podcast. Just want to say thank you again to you gentlemen, and thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. See you later, guys. All right, Tony, Z, it's been great. Good podcast. We'll see you soon. All right. right. Forget about it. See you. See you guys. All right.